0: Welcome to Import This, a podcast for humans. This is episode seven, I believe, and today we are not joined with our co-host Alex because he is, uh, he's is he been taking in a lot of the information that he downloaded during his uh, spirit quest um, that we discussed in the last episode, and he is currently taking a vow of silence. Uh, so hopefully he will return uh, to be a co-host soon. Uh, I talked to him recently over the interwebs uh, Cause, you know, you can speak over text, that's allowed. And uh, he said that he may be able to join us for one episode soon, so I'm excited about that. And today I am joined as his fill-in uh, with Lukasa, I believe is how you pronounce the Twitter handle, uh, Corey Benfield, one of the wonderful reasons why requests is still a thing. Uh, hi, Corey. how are you? Hi,
1: I'm really good. I am very pleased to be here. How are you, Kenneth?
0: I'm doing wonderful. I've had a tremendous amount of caffeine this morning, so... Uh, Excellent. Good. I've, I'm, Usually I'm a having good start. a great, great morning.
1: <laughs> best best start to the morning, I find. I avoid meetings before I've had coffee.
0: We uh, Before uh, we hit record, you were telling me about this great theory that you heard about coffee being responsible for the productivity in the re- Industrial Revolution.
1: Yeah, the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment. So the theory goes that... Um, Prior to the introduction of coffee into Western Europe, in order to disinfect water, the most common way to do that was to brew it into an alcohol, and so there were, you know, everyone was drinking beer as their uh, primary method of getting safe potable water. Uh, low, low alcohol beer oh, is something. like...
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. I've, I've heard of this. Yeah, so
1: it's not like your modern craft beers with their 11%, you take, take a, have a couple of bottles and you're just out for the day. It's your really low to be, you know, 1 or 2% alcohol by volume, quite drinkable. Um, but well, still
0: that's quite a suppressant yeah right
1: so suppresses you makes you less motivated less able to do stuff less able to do but the alcohol
0: the distilled the water and made it so it was safe to drink yeah exactly uh, and so yeah, and you, you still see that if you have a brewed soda it's like about that amount mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's usually like 1% 1.5 or something
1: yeah something something really low like it's not a but huge but you can't problem. even taste it but yeah. it's there yeah exactly yeah. And it and it affects it, you know, it's got a it's got the same psychoactive effect as alcohol ordinarily does, just usually on it. Or
0: like kava skirt. or something like that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Kava carver I, I tend to find and maybe this is just in my head, kava does a bit of a number on me, weirdly.
0: Oh really? I find it quite yeah. uh placebo ish for me. I mean it definitely uh. works. I used it for headaches for a while, uh <laughs> and other things. And it, it was it definitely relaxes me, but it, it's a, it's not like, like alcohol really fucks me up. So I don't yeah. have to drink alcohol at all. Like any alcohol at all. My the next day I feel I have a hangover the whole next day, even if I have a half a beer. Oh, I, that's, that's and that's new good. for me. I didn't used to be that way. Um yes. my, something about my metabolism changed. I guess when you abstain from it for a while it's more powerful.
1: Yeah, I think that's the general, the general position on it, right, is, and it does all kinds of wacky stuff to you, and it's... I mean, the human body is just this absurdly complicated machine and it's always really easy. Well, last night
0: I indulged in sugar like crazy and I usually avoid it because it's it's actually metabolized almost identically in your body as ethanol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And it it felt like a hangover and I was super dehydrated and I drank a bunch of water before I went to bed and it's it's because I had a lot of sugar last night because it was Halloween. Yeah, of course. And I don't know, it's just so interesting. So the idea is... Basically, introducing caffeine as in this viable source of drinking water uh, enabled us to be more productive and lead to the Enlightenment. Is yeah. who has this theory?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Cite your sources. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm sure I can go find it, but uh, but it's just
0: like a known. Wiki- there's probably a Wikipedia article about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you could Google
1: it. I don't think there's any. You know, there's no hard evidence behind it. This is one of those things where you can more like you can construct a nice story in your head that sounds like it probably explains some stuff. You'd have yeah, to go well, take So, all.
0: so that's my this is a good segue actually because that helps me like feel more comfortable consuming copious amounts of caffeine to be productive. Um, back in the day, like you know, I, I don't know, let's say five to three years ago, I was always being absurdly productive in the open source world and producing tremendous amounts of code and being very, very active in those channels, creating projects like requests, which, of course, you're very intimately familiar with. And nowadays, I don't have that stamina or interest level at all. And you have stepped up along with Ian in requests, and that's the reason that the project is still uh, being maintained actively. If If I was the only one doing it, it would still be maintained, but the level of maintenance would be one-tenth of what it is you know it would be like this is frozen and it's done basically and we still have that policy but but there's still a tremendous amount of work to keep it at that level because it's the internet changes and policies change and there's cves that are released and you know cves would not be addressed if i was the only person doing the project (laughs) not in any way i'd just be like i do not care Unless TVs someone else in did, that's what like, you guys do. And I, yeah. I'm curious, where do you get the stamina? Because I lost it. Uh, where do you get the? Because you, I, my inbox is filled with at least twenty emails a day of you responding to people on GitHub, and that's just my project. And you're involved in other projects, and I know that's a big part of your job, but still having that interest level and you know, like it, it doesn't bore you. Where where does that? Where do you get that?
1: Ah, uh, I mean, I think I think the best answer I can can give to that is that I'm uh, a little bit lucky. Um, it's, I'm, I'm gonna like immediately step back and go, there are times when it is crushingly boring.
0: <laughs> uh, like, so you do, get, you do get burnt out. Yeah, no, I mean,
1: I think calling it burnt out is a little bit strong. Uh, I definitely have days where it is really hard to get anything done. I like, can just, you sit there and nothing works and everything is hard and everything is boring and you just say, all I wanna do is anything but this. And the best coaching <laughs> strategy I have for that kind of situation is you just go, oh, all right, look, this isn't working. Let's find something else that's kind of vaguely related to my job that isn't terrible to do and do yeah. that. Because I find generally if I can give myself a break for a couple days uh, that I'm, I'm pretty able to get back to a place where I'm productive again.
0: See, I do that, but I do it with music and I do it with photography. I have mm. found... I used to do it with like open source, but nowadays I just go away from the computer as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all those things involve <clears throat> the computer, but I don't do code anymore. Sure. Uh, and that's something that I'm personally struggling with. Is like I want to build something again, but I don't have anything that I want to build. I think I'm more in a consumptive phase of my life, hmm. uh, where I was in a productive phase for a long time, and and I struggle with that because I'm like career-wise, I'm like you know I'm very happy in the job I have. And I think I can stay there for a while, but if I was to go find a new job like constructing Django apps and stuff, I could do it, but that's not like my first inclination of what I want to do in my free time. Sure. And so I miss doing that. I used to create like HTTP bin and requests and all this stuff, and I've lost that spark. And I I struggle personally with if that's good or not, and I don't know if you've enabled <laughs> me to lose that spark or not. <laughs> and I, I for those like... listening, I can't even begin to express how thankful I am to both Corey and Ian for how much um, they've done for the Python community in general, but specifically for requests. They they basically what happened was uh, I assimilated them into the project. They were they were just commenting on a lot of stuff and like the the most. The, if you're ever looking for a contributor to one of your projects and you're afraid to like hand the keys over, the best Thing for me is when someone is like, they're not annoying, uh, and they're they're like, oh hey, this issue should be closed because it's fixed already, and stuff like that. If they're doing things like that, then it's like, okay. What I did is I just I just added them as collaborators. I'm like, don't touch anything, but like you know you can like poke around and help maintain stuff. And then eventually, you know, it grows and grows and grows, and now they can make releases on their own. And there's a, no longer a bus factor of of one or zero. It's now two or three. So. Um, and so we did that know, you, we did
1: that back in ahead. 2013 I think I think it's 2013 I unfortunately it's not when, like when a you commit started in off. the repo uh, when, when you granted Ian and me the commit bit that we so rarely use um, but um, you use
0: it we use it a lot now we use it to
1: merge mostly but
0: oh yeah you, yeah You but if there's like a security thing and, yeah. and all
1: that yeah but, but certainly like when we did that that was you know if you think about it, GitHub back in 2013 it was pretty pretty slim pickings feature-wise, and so there was a lot of... It was convention, right? It was, you know, Ian and I both went, we promise yeah, not if, to... If I wanted you to merge to
0: any, anything or close a ticket, even, that's you had to have commit bit.
1: Yeah, correct. Whereas now, in your modern GitHub, you can, you can afford to be much more free with the commit bit, because you can restrict what you can commit to. So, on some of the HTTP2 projects I work on, I've got this policy where if you make any contribution, any commit into the repository in any form, touch docs, touch uh, CI, write a test, anything at all, I immediately grant you the commit bit. Because- Oh, really? Yeah, because one of the things I can do is restrict uh, what that commit bit allows you to do. So that commit bit, you still can't push to master, you still can't merge without getting a, uh, a review from someone can't merge without the tests passing. Uh, only administrators can do that. So GitHub's added all this, like, ton of extra control, which makes it really easy. I actually easy. didn't
0: know that those features existed. That's pretty cool.
1: It's super cool. It's, it makes it really, really easy to just say, oh, look, yeah, just join it. You, you, know, you should get the commit. Feel free. You can and push so it with your own branches. Seen
0: that, like, um, contribute to people being more active in the project after they make a one-off? I
1: think so. It's anecdotal. Like I don't have, I don't have an update. Because that's a lot of adding people,
0: helped. right? Like, how many people do you have added in? Like thirty, twenty-three. Uh, check.
1: But I think it's, yeah, it's somewhere in the thirty to forty realm. Um, and that's a lot. It's a lot, especially for a project that's, like, it's ultimately not that interesting to most people. It's pretty low down. The yeah, it's thirty. So, it's pretty low so, down so if someone's going to take
0: their time to add something, they're going to probably make their own branch and it's going to have a bunch of crazy shit and you're not going to know what's in any of the branches.
1: Yeah, but I don't really care what's in any of the branches except Master, like, <laughs> just, it's fine. You can do whatever you like. And it's it's a little bit like, you know, I want You're like a people. playground
0: more. So that's kind of like the way a Django should operate, in my opinion. Yeah. So that's kind of a cool... I like that model. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's a good idea.
1: I'm yet to see how far it goes, but I'm acutely aware, like, A lot of these projects... Yeah, because do do you consider...
0: Well, we should tell our listeners about the things that you do in addition to maintaining requests, which is a tremendous amount of work. And uh, in my worldview, your main thing... It's not your main thing in your worldview. It's your main thing is H2. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Can you tell everyone about that?
1: Yeah, so H2 H2 is a super... Well, I think it's a super interesting project. I suspect most people wouldn't agree.
0: But... Um, In the future, they'll take advantage (laughs) of it and not know. In the future, (laughs) they might already
1: be taking advantage of it, not knowing. To be honest, it's it's around. Um, But so h two (laughs) is that's fantastic. Yeah, h two is an HTTP two protocol implementation for Python. It is of which now there are.
0: I remember when I made the um, protocol adapters for requests, I wanted it to be turnkey for HTTP two, and I tried to do it, and there it was impossible. Nothing existed.
1: Yeah. So is so, that still the
0: case, or is H two the only option?
1: H uh, two, yeah, H two is the only option. So I frequently describe H two as uh, the best Python HTTP two implementation.
0: <laughs> uh, and I feel pretty good <laughs> about fantastic. that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Right. But well, it's like the best. The best camera is the one that you have on you, right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Right. It's and you know. The, by definition, if there's only one of something, it is going to be the best of that thing. You know, no big it's deal. also
0: the worst. It's also the worst, admittedly, but that's fine. You know, come fix it. I'm sure someone has another one around. Like There's a uh, Twisted one,
1: I'm sure. No, Twisted is built on. Twisted's HTTP2 support is built on H2.
0: So you are the underlying infrastructure upon which all all HTTP2 will be built?
1: So that's the goal. So so the problem I was trying so to solve is. standard library
0: H2, is being targeted potentially?
1: No. Nah. Um, Okay. We'll come back to the standard library thing, because you and I, I think, agree on our position in the standard library about the standard library.
0: Which is but, make it smaller instead of make it bigger.
1: Yeah, but I don't think anyone else... I think a lot of people don't feel that way, and I've wanted to kind of write a blog post at some point that says, you know, why I hate the standard library. Um,
0: <laughs> the but, idea
1: of the standard library. Yeah, yeah, right. But but spinning back to H2, like, H2 is is almost... is nearly unique in a class of libraries in Python, because... Uh, I wrote it to solve this very specific problem I had, which was that I would written an HTTP2 implementation already, called Hyper. um, Which is a server
0: and a client? That's
1: just a client. And it was built around a model of um, HTTP lib, HTTP.client in the standard library. uh, Because I was an idiot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Seemed like such a good idea at the time, I was like, oh, it'll be drop-in compatible, it'll be great. Um, But...
0: And this is based on all the knowledge you had on requests already.
1: Yeah, right? Like, I was one of, the, one of the people best equipped to replicate what HGTP lib did. Um,
0: but, and, and you still thought that was a good idea? Right? Yeah, I don't know if I was drunk. Well, no, I, I still, I mean, is it still a good idea to do that on top
1: of H2? So it is on top of H2 now. I ripped out the internals. Uh, it's built on top of H2. Now. Okay.
0: Um, and it's still a good idea to have that project, no. you think? Uh, no. <laughs> I,
1: again, I've got this another blog post sat in my head that says, why my most popular project is the one I hate the most.
0: Um, like I, cool. That's the one. Like, if Request is going to use it
1: today, it would use Hyper, right? Yeah. And you can get Requests to do HTTP two today using Hyper, and people do. Like this is a not a not a hypothetical thing. Yeah, there's there's uh-huh. a
0: connection adapter that you can use. It's available today to yep. do that. We yep. should and let people know. Do you know what it's called? I don't. Uh, the connection
1: adapter. It's called Hyper. It's in the Hyper library. Like if you pip install Hyper, oh, it's it comes in. with it comes with a request adapter.
0: Yeah. And then um, you have a two liner, and you get HTTP two automatically working in Requests. Yep. And yeah, people so that's are using the beauty that of requests and hyper, and everything's amazing. But yeah, <laughs> but but but
1: uh, the lesson I learned building hyper was that um, HTTP/2 sucks in synchronous code, um, and the reason which it sucks in synchronous, what, code.
0: which is like what everyone writes code in.
1: Correct, and particularly what everyone using requests write code writes code in. Um, and the yes. reason it sucks is because uh, HTTP 2's got all of this bidirectional communication going on all the time and there is a whole lot of data being exchanged about the connection like it's not request and response data it's you know what's the state of various settings what's the state of the flow control window all of this kind of information you have a little
0: bit of that in mm. HTTP 1.1 where you have pipelines oh, yeah, but, but that's so still send well. and receive right that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not like a metadata about the connection itself correct and it's super constant and um, and it
1: requires this timely response from both sides. Like, both sides need to be kind of constantly polling the connection and making sure that the state is okay and that they're responding to requests for information as quickly as possible and all this kind of stuff.
0: And it has pipelining built in as well as um, connection polling, I assume?
1: Yeah, all of those over things. A,
0: is it your connection point over a single TLS connection or do you do multiple TLS connections?
1: One TLS connection, one TCP connection, multiple request responses down it.
0: Okay, so it's just pipelining.
1: Yeah, uh, it's not quite pipelining. It is more like multiplexing. So it's oh, okay, um, okay.
0: It interleaves. So it's like it's a TCP/IP type of thing.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit like that. Uh, that's a good way to think about it. Or like if you're a network protocols nerd, um, it's a bit like SCTP, uh, which no one ever uses, but uh, it's <laughs> my favorite transport protocol in the history of the world. Uh, is that what was that? A secure copy? Uh, no, SCTP. It's the stream control. Transmission protocol, stream control transfer protocol? What is that used for? um, So, SCTP, so like uh, UDP is a datagrams, so it sends datagrams, like delimited fixed size chunks with no reliability and no guarantee about ordering. TCP sends a data stream, uh, so it has no. And it has
0: handshakes and ensures that. And it's got connection integrity and all
1: this other stuff. Um, SCTP is a little uh. bit like both of that. Uh So, oh, cool. so SCTP is...
0: Uh, so, it's everything... like order isn't as important, but everything will get there eventually. Yeah, order is important.
1: Um, data integrity is important. But it comes in chunks, and it has, like, the equivalent of um, multiplexing. So, each connection with it can have within it multiple streams of data going back and forward. Uh, and this, it's this idea of
0: being able to, like, have... Uh, so if you're doing like a video stream, that would that be good, or you would probably use it more for, for what? Uh, SCTP can be
1: used for video streams. Uh, WebRTC, uh, if anyone knows about it, uh, which is commonly used for doing video or audio uh, in browsers. We may be ticker. using
0: it right now for our yeah, chat. We may well be using it right now for our
1: chat. Uh, <laughs> that often uses SCTP. Um, okay. Uh, that's pretty much the only place where it's widely deployed, except for in telephony. It's very widely deployed in the mm. uh, telephone backhauls, which is why I know like about it. SS7 and stuff like that? Exactly, SS7. That is where it is used. It's the mandatory transport protocol for SS7. Understood. Okay, cool. Um, so, anyway. So,
0: I understand why that. So, you, yeah, that makes perfect sense because you need perfect. They, they strive for perfection there, but they have, it's eventual consistency, basically.
1: Yeah, a, that's exactly right. So, pulling ourselves back up the the uh, digression stack a couple of levels, (laughs) (laughs) um, where we were talking about the the problems with HTTP two. All of this means that it is um, the model where uh, that like request and hyper have is that they only get to run when the user calls into that library code. Uh, That's how synchronous code works. And so that means that you know the user calls into hyper or requests or whatever gets to do a whole ton of stuff to the connection and then. Returns to them and then hyper doesn't get to look at the connection again until the user calls back in And that's terrible for HTTP 2 like HTTP 2 just kind of falls apart if that gap is more than about a second
0: Yeah, So unless the which user is, is great because if your synchronous code is working properly it should be the case But if you are downloading a large file or something
1: or if you're just not using the connection that heavily
0: or the okay, Other
1: case it's really common if you're playing about with the connection in the interactive interpreter is you will go back try to reuse the connection and it'll blow up in your face because we don't know yet but 15 frames further down the remote server said by the way this is the new maximum frame size and we didn't see that yet so so
0: in my mind that you just have a either a system library that always you is running the back end of this thing or a sub thread uh and that's probably the solution right i
1: think the solution for the synchronous stuff is a thread um, now, this is, drives me absolutely crazy, because spawning threads in Python is just an absolute nightmare. Um, I don't what know. What about subprocess? Subprocess isn't like vastly better, and the increased communication overhead of communicating with the subprocess uh, kind of eats away any performance win you might have got from doing H2. Um, gotcha it's kind
0: I'm of I I'm, I'm thinking i guess uh, usability from like a code perspective yeah i mean the optimizing ultimate, for
1: that the ultimate usability from the code perspective um, unfortunately it, apple's already done it so um, if you've ever used if anyone's ever used nsurl session um, ah. one common thing that nsurl session does does is uh, and usually running on most machines probably running on your own machine right
0: now does um, it just has a background service that just handles connections? Yeah, it's got NSURL Session D. <laughs> <laughs> D uh, or B? D.
1: Um, D, you, yeah, yeah. That's what could, I was
0: thinking. That's you can probably it's right there. <laughs> could you dip into that from Python if it's if you're running on a Mac? Probably? Uh, I've
1: written Python bindings for NSURL Session. Yeah, they exist. Yeah. Um, I wrote... Uh, I don't know if I ever published it. Did I publish it? I wrote as and a they joke. Did that,
0: you think they did that for HTTP2?
1: Uh, no they didn't NSURL session predates http 2 but it gets transparent oh, wow. http 2 support kind of just because Man, always, it's really easy I to do. I love how it. on
0: top of stuff they are. They like they're so ahead of the game when it comes to I don't write I'm not I don't write code for that space, but I I I always have such a deep respect for it because it seems like they really think ahead in terms of architecture. Yeah, I mean But it makes it like, really hard to write code because it's really proper. <laughs>
1: yeah. Certainly and certainly like that idea has been really good and they've kept up on like N S session has added features really, really quickly. They've been really effective with it. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty impressed it, by that.
0: There's the requests of um, of that world. I can't remember what it's called, my friend wrote it. Um, Matt with three Ts. Do you know what his thing is called? Uh, NSURL handler, I think. Maybe. There's a thing. I'm not sure. That's what everyone uses, like like Gwala. He wrote it for Koala, I think. Oh
1: yeah, that sounds plausible. Uh, so I wrote, I maybe never published it. Must have published it. Um, I wrote, more or less as a joke to prove the point. Uh, I wrote um, a library called Requests Darwin.
0: Oh, uh, cool. I didn't requests, know about that.
1: Requests Darwin is uh, a requests transport adapter that uses NSURL
0: is it fast as hell,
1: or uh, mostly what it is right now is buggy as hell. I never finished it, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a whole lot of things it doesn't do. Um, but it's I'm the first star on that repo. Right. Yeah. No, I, I never really talked about it or published it because it's it's not that interesting. I was more doing it to to kind of prove a point about binary. Oh, and then to, you just
0: get magic HTTP 2 Well,
1: yeah, you get magic a whole lot of stuff, right? Like you, uh, you it, it will work on iOS, which most um, request code will not. Uh, oh, really? Well, a request code works
0: kind of on iOS, but iOS is a bit tricky. Um, iOS. I've been thinking of writing a, a a Mac app using pure Python. Well, it's totally doable. Totally and doable. It, that should request should work fine there, but not on iOS. Yeah, Mac will be fine. On iOS,
1: it's tricky, and the reason on iOS it's tricky is uh, if you use regular sockets on iOS, they are available. The Berkeley sockets API is there, but uh, they don't interact with the uh, system radio in any way. So if the system's put mm. the cellular radio to sleep, opening up a socket well, will kind of not expected. wake it back up.
0: Yeah, So you wouldn't do that for a real app, but if you were running like a script, it'd be, it'd be fine. It's, it's, it's just like how your laptop works, basically. Yeah, except so Twisted
1: uh, can use the proper magic sockets that do the right thing.
0: Oh, so, really? Yeah,
1: so uh, Twisted is in fact looking like the easiest way to write pure, pure Python iOS apps, because it can integrate huh. with the iOS event loop and do all the iOS eventy things. Which, That's really cool. I know. I really want to come up with like a proof of concept something, but I haven't come up with a good idea of what it should be yet.
0: Like, you should write a request
1: for that. <laughs> there already is. Um, who wrote it? Maybe David Reed wrote uh, T rec which is requests on top of Twisted's HTTP stack.
0: I have seen that. Yeah. Well, I wasn't thinking, I was thinking more like a human layer to make it really approachable for anyone who wants to write. Because uh, Twisted is kind of hard to approach. Oh, yeah. No question.
1: So. Um, so the person to talk to there, like I could do that, but I'm just going to let Russell Keith McGee deal with it. Do you know Russell? Beware. Yeah, beware. Um, which aside, he's from, doing
0: those cool coins
1: when you contribute. Yeah, he's doing. It's really awesome. But he's also got um, a whole lot of tools. Like his his goal is one of his goals is to make it really easy to write um, mobile apps from Python.
0: Yeah, he's kind of doing like the reverse of what apps. Well, kind of. What, there was this old thing called Accelerator. I don't know what it's called now, but you uh, would write you have, it in JavaScript. S- Oh uh, yeah,
1: I feel like I felt like Appcelerator became a different company, didn't they? Became like um, begins with X. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, some other company.
0: And and you would write your, your code in HTML and JavaScript, and then it would compile it to Android or iOS. And yeah. It works really well for basic stuff. And as Beware is kind of the same thing, but you write it in Python.
1: Yeah, a little bit. At Python it doesn't recompile. That's the that's the key difference. Is that like it does actually run the Python code directly on iOS. Oh, Oh, no. Sorry, I say that. It doesn't recompile for iOS and it doesn't recompile for iOS because iOS apps, basically when it boils down to it, are just C code and so you can make the Python interpreter run in that. For Android, they do recompile and for Android in particular, he's doing this, Russell's done this wacky, crazy magic that compiles the Python bytecode, I think? Into into Java bytecode? Not even Java bytecode, Java class files. Wow. (laughs) Like it's, Sort wacky sorcery. I've seen some of the code, and it just looks like it's monstrous.
0: But and then it also runs in the browser. I think
1: by definition, it also yeah. runs in the browser. Yeah, I mean, he it's... showed
0: me that at PyCon. He was showing me yeah. HTML stuff. The whole and I was project's like, kind of crazy. this is like it's way too ambitious for me. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: But there is um, there's some pretty good like discussion between between Russell, so the Beware Project and the Twisted Project about how to make them kind of cooperate together a bit more effectively. And so huh. um, that led to some improvements in Twisted. So Twisted ported some more some specific stuff over to Python 3.5 uh, expressly so that uh, it could work with the Beware project. Cool. Yeah.
0: So there's a well, lot of stuff. I don't think we should go going. too far down this tangent.
1: <laughs> you say that. I mean, this whole podcast is about tangents. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, That's true.
0: It's the tangential podcast. It is the tangential podcast. But spinning back to H2,
1: my long, long description of what H2 is. Um, Uh, So I I was having this real problem with the synchronous um, API, and I was like, okay, well look, I'll go and I'll write an asynchronous HTTP2 library so I don't hate myself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You laugh now. You still haven't written that library. Uh, But the... I, I bumped into this problem where I was like, well, I've just written this HTTP2 stack, but I can't reuse any of it. Even though I have this thing that nominally understands how HTTP2 works, I can't actually Share that code in between hyper or anything else like they don't they don't get along in practice I was able to pull out a couple of little layers into their own libraries but the bulk of the kind of state machine and the understanding of how the protocol fits together i couldn't couldn't reuse so I had uh, an idea that has been had many 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 times before uh, which was that I would I should have written from the start the code core of the code in a way that doesn't know anything about IO mm. so it's this basic idea that says don't don't so basically import the Sonic.
0: connection that's what we did with the request too was it was bound directly to IO code and then I abstracted it away into its own class that could be injected in and out
1: correct uh, and so request is a pretty good example I, I frequently have this conversation with people where they're like well look why don't you do a sans IO request and I say well your alias request is very nearly, uh, completely sans I.O. It does have the I.O. in a couple places where it expects it done a certain way,
0: but yeah, in yeah. practice. There's a protocol that's expected, like the sock, you just need to file the like object basically.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to go one step further than that. I didn't want to even expect a protocol. I wanted a thing that you could put into any protocol, like it was bring your, your methods, own I/O. Basically. Yeah, it does all of the protocol in memory. You feed bytes in the top. It tells you what those bytes meant, and then you say, I want to do thing X, and it pushes bytes out the bottom back to you and says, get those bytes onto the network however you can.
0: And it, uh, does it have its
1: own event loop? It doesn't have its own event loop because it doesn't need one. Uh, it runs purely synchronously. It does all the evaluation when you push bytes in at the top or when you tell it to do a thing oh, on so
0: the it's a f- This is a functional thing.
1: Uh, it's object oriented, but it's functional in the sense that it is—it is intended to have um, no. Like you ex- make a
0: call, and then you get a, a synchronous response, and that will go through an event loop if one's present in the outside code. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, it, it, the reality is like uh, the outside code like, is like ideally, the outside
0: code is asynchronous, and then you just kind of dip the the outside into code it when can you, need it you like, like, right? So, like I said earlier, a Hyper is
1: now built on top of this, and so hyper's using it in a purely synchronous form. Um, And it probably cleaned up the hypercode quite a bit? cleaned up the hypercode just a whole lot. In fact, the hypercode is is now still a mess, but it's its own mess, like it's getting in its own way, and the mess of it now is one of those things where I look at it and I go, this was a terrible abstraction. I couldn't (laughs) see how terrible the abstraction was because it was covered by all this protocol code. Um, yeah, And then yeah. now, once all that protocol code is gone, it becomes something you look at this and go, why the hell did I do this? This makes no sense That's at all. That's
0: request was like when I did the, the big refactor. I did it in like four days and it was ridiculous how much how much more beautiful the code got to me as I removed all the IO code into its own section. And I was just like... And it became, it became a lot more obvious to me what the library actually does, like what it offers people, because there's yeah. a lot of stuff in there and it's <laughs> like, because when you describe it to someone, it sounds like, uh, okay, why do I want that, you know? Yeah. But when you actually look at what it does, it's doing a hell of a lot of shit.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, a good, it's a much better model of, of design, but the key, one of the key things you do is once you've done that, if you've been very, very rigorous about your, um, your protocol, core protocol code, it can just be its own library, and then you can go pull it out, and you can turn around and say, okay, I've built Hyper on top of it. Now I'll go and build a twisted server on top of it.
0: And that's what basically URL 3 is for us, effectively, for it's requests. Bit, like,
1: it's a little bit what URL 3 is like, but actually, internally, URL 3 is even more
0: uh, oh, it's, IO it's the everywhere. jankiest thing in the world, probably. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's IO everywhere. It's... it's um, when I say I'm, janky, I mean, like like, it works so well, but it's built totally into what's already there like it doesn't yeah i mean
1: uh 3 is is fundamental fundamentally pretty tightly integrated to http lib uh and that means it has all of the terrible baggage that http lib brings with it
0: uh, yeah the but but it was designed that way i mean that's why it has that beautiful name yeah right
1: and and http lib has been i think for about three years uh a common refrain amongst the 3 core developers is we could fix this except http lib doesn't let us and so we've just yeah. increasingly patched more and more code into HTTP lib. So we're engaged we in this- people like
0: uh, Augie Fackler who want to rewrite HTTP
1: lib. Yeah, so Augie and I have been talking a lot because, uh, and I can tell, um, I'll talk about it on this podcast and it'll just be, you know, even though I've been keeping it no, quiet. I don't,
0: no uh, one will care. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh,
1: I have a secret skunkworks project to remove HTTP lib from URL 3
0: um, three. Wow. And... That would be ambitious. Would it be embedded? I assume? Uh, whatever is
1: replacing it? I think I would have to embed it. But, um, so once I published H2, and I gave a PyCon <coughs> talk about H2, and this style oh. of pro- building protocol libraries...
0: Uh, you I just d- add a, an HTTP 1 layer to H2? So
1: I didn't want to do an HTTP 1 layer. I thought the value proposition for HTTP 1 was bad. Specifically, there are already, mm. like, eight, nine H, H1 implementations floating around already. And like, they are
0: inspired by H2? No, they weren't, it's by H2. I
1: mean, like, literally, like, so you think HTTP.client exists, that's an HTTP implementation. I thought Twisted. you meant the name H1. Um, yeah, no, no, I just mean HTTP 1 implementation. So Twisted's got its own one, Tornado's yeah, got its own like one. That's, like, real protocol HTTP.
0: people lingo you're using there, yeah, H1 sorry, and H2. Yeah, fault. My fault.
1: <laughs> <laughs> too, usually too far Head down on this protocol stuff.
0: Uh, but So H1 to the layperson is shorthand for HTTP 1.1?
1: Yeah. And it's the shorthand that gets used in the IETF in particular because it's really tiring to have a meeting. Of which that lasts. you are
0: a member, yep. right?
1: Yep. And it's really tiring to have a meeting where you have to say HTTP a whole lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. You just, you just. After a while, you want to go. It's much faster to just say H1, H2. Yeah, that's,
0: that's really the. Easy. That's the uh, internal name. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um,
1: so. Um, I'd done all this HTTP2 stuff, and people kept saying, well, why don't you write sans IO HTTP1 library? And I just kept looking at it going, look, who would use it? No one will use it. Everyone's already got their own stuff. And HTTP1 looks simple. So people are really inclined to write their own half assed crappy implementations, which they do all the time, and I wish people would stop. Um, The opposite of curl. The opposite of curl. Like, um, (laughs) HTTP 1 has this terrible effect of looking really simple at a protocol level. And so everyone thinks they can write it. Uh, And then they miss all of the little subtleties. So...
0: Oh, that's, what it, that's how requests started. I was just like, yeah. well, this API sucks, I'm going to make it simple like it really is. Leave and the API I alone. was like... able to kind of do that. Well, sorry, well requests... no, I, I stuck to the real API, like what HTTP is, and that's how I was able to be successful. But, but even there, like requests,
1: requests pastes over a lot of the wackiness of H1 at a protocol level.
0: Yeah, because HTTP Lib does it for me.
1: (laughs) And then EuroLib 3 does a whole lot for you as well. A whole lot, Um, yeah. And then Requests does some of its own terrible lot, like trying to understand every now and then you see a thing, but it's not what it looks like. Yeah, Yeah. because
0: servers are stupid. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So so, uh, as a really good example of this, um, someone proposed in the IETF recently to add a 103 status code. Which is? Uh, 103... Extra hints, I think, is what it would be, and it's oh. um, basically the uh, the goal. That the problem is trying to serve is there's this great mechanism in HTTP headers to tell a browser or a a, a client of some kind that to render this body, you're going to need to go and get all this other stuff, um, like you're going to need to go get that CSS file and that well, JavaScript file.
0: Isn't that what the link header is
1: for? That is exactly what the link header is for. So uh, the problem with that is you can't send that 200 response until you know roughly what the body's going to look like. Um, so the goal of this header is to let you send the link header early uh, and then hold oh. off on the final response until you know what the final response is going to look like. So, you so send, it's kind of
0: like a 200 continue like in a, a way. It's, a,
1: it's very similar to 100 continue, but you're not saying, please send me the data now. You're saying, while you're, I am rendering this, while I am working out what the body looks F- like, you go and stuff. get this stuff. Yeah. So it
0: saves a single request uh, timeline. It saves, yeah, it saves probably, in practice, it saves 80 to 100
1: milliseconds latency in most cases. Uh, But that's helpful. That's a really really useful thing. Anyway, I was like, cool, this is a great idea. Uh, But here's the problem. Do you know how many Python HTTP 1 libraries can handle a 103?
0: Uh, Precisely one. Uh, If you exclude... Uh, the <laughs> library that I am
1: planning to use un, un, under, under Eurolib3? Uh, zero. Exactly zero. Uh, yeah. Requests can't do it because Eurolib3 can't do it because HTTP lib can't do it. Um, well, we
0: can't do continues either for the most part. Yeah, no,
1: we can't do pro- 100 continue properly either um, because of HTTP lib.
0: That's Auggie's whole thing is, to is continue. That is Auggie's <laughs> <laughs> whole thing.
1: I got Auggie very excited when I told him that my planned removal of HTTP lib will come with the ability to do 100 continue.
0: That's his whole, his whole reason behind the whole thing is so Mercurial can do continue.
1: Yeah, exactly. But we're, we're hopefully getting there.
0: Uh, but anyway,
1: so HTTP... HTTP lib 2, which every now and then people claim they want to use, also can't do it. Uh, Twisted's HTTP library can't do it. AIO HTTP can't do it. Uh, literally none of them can handle it. They all treat the 103 response as a final response. And then they put the 200 yeah. in the body, uh, which is bonkers... Bonkers wrong the specs super clear that if you see a 100 response you don't understand just ignore it and keep going So
0: is the 103 then you still use the link headers? I assume well, they would still use the link headers in the 103.
1: Yeah, there Um, would be no body Well, there would. sometimes they say there's no body that's bad like that's bad in a really subtle way Um, Partly because it hides the 200 from the user But more importantly it leaves the 200 in the socket buffer So if you then send another request on that socket, you will read the 200 response to the old request, and treat it as the 200 response to the new request.
0: I mean, because in my mind I'm still thinking two requests, so I'm thinking you have a 102, because I'm thinking from the server side. Mm -hmm. You know, you do a 102, you respond with it with no body, and and then you stay with another response properly.
1: Yeah, and so that's exactly right, but the way you need to think about what uh, these clients that that treat the 103 as a response with no body do, is they say, okay, 103 response with no body, we're done. Here's your response.
0: Yeah, and then you would have to have your own code to do it again, which kind of defeats the purpose of it. Well, in some cases, you can't.
1: Like HTTP lib says, here's your 103 response, and then you say get response again, and it goes, you can't get a response again. I've given you yeah, the response. You'd <laughs> have to
0: start all over, basically. Yeah. And that's what, to me, in my mind, I can't imagine it being any other way. I mean, but the, that's because I'm built on top of HTTP lib in my yeah. brain.
1: Well, so the correct thing for HTTP lib to do,
0: uh, there are two. Uh, correct
1: thing number one is if it wanted to be really clever, it could have a callback for 1xx responses that it uses, and if a user really does care about seeing, and it, at could one point for this callback. also
0: seems like hyper optimization that's unnecessary, but that's what the web's all about, I guess. Exactly. But uh, indeed,
1: and and I'm not actually worried. Like I don't think Python people would use this. I don't think anyone's going to write a Python client that will actually use the data in the 103. Uh, but they need to not explode when they see one, right? Like, it's, and that's why the correct thing for HTTP lib to do really is to just throw it away, is to just go, okay, here's a 100 response. Just eat it. Eat yeah. it and continue. Eat it. Keep going. Like, it's not relevant to me, and that's what the specs so is. So that's you should what do.
0: requests could do automatically. Requests cannot do it automatically
1: that, with, unless we. Well, we have
0: the loop built in, it would be two requests.
1: I mean, the requests can't do it unless it gets HTTP lib out of the way entirely. Like basically once once HDB well, we done Well, we would that.
0: receive the 103, and then we would just make another request based on it. No, no, no. Uh, so the that would defeat the whole purpose. Yeah. And, and in fact,
1: we want to make make another request, quote unquote, that HTTP lib thinks was made, but that doesn't actually reach the socket, because otherwise it so will it, trigger another response from the server, right? Like
0: there <laughs> must be. Uh, is there a way to to tell the server when you're making the request if you support that or not?
1: Well, so that's exactly the thing. Is my response back to the to the ITF was this is a great idea. It needs to be negotiated. Like you need to, you it. need you need to have need to put a header in front of it because you'll. Like, the Python ecosystem's a mess, clearly. Like, it needs
0: to have an accepts f- header of some sort, right? Correct, yeah.
1: Because clearly the Python ecosystem's a problem, but it's w- totally reasonable to assume that this problem is really common in other
0: language ecosystems, too, right? Like, but no one cares, yeah. probably. No one's talking about it.
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, it's just. Well, it's when you sit in so so on those understand.
0: meetings, uh, what, what languages are represented?
1: Is it. Like, I, is it in terms of language communities, uh, Python and Go, and that's it.
0: And then so, and there's a bunch of HTTP nerds?
1: Yeah, and then it's a bunch of, like, um, Where did they come from? I don't understand. Well, so they come from a few places. They come from browser vendors. It's really common. They're, the, they're a big, heavyweight okay. margin. Uh, and they don't represent languages, because they're all written in C++. Um, and then server vendors is really common. So people who write Apache, or people who write uh, okay. nginx, X, people who write um, other kinds ISS, of services. ISS, maybe? Quiet. quiet. I, don't, I don't see the ISS people around, um, but I suspect they are around. Um, Microsoft
0: is building a new server now. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, neither can I. Microsoft browser team was around. Um, Okay. And
1: and then the other really common one is um, proxies. Proxies and intermediaries. So, Mm. you know, the squid folks, the HA proxy folks, uh, they're all around. So people
0: who are really just dealing with it as a protocol.
1: Yeah, right. These are all protocol implementers at, at this basic level. And,
0: like, mostly... Yeah, probably someone from like Akamai or something. Akamai tend to
1: be around. Cloudflare are around. You know, your big CDNs gotcha. all present.
0: Like. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, and then you. And then me. Yeah. <laughs> and then me
1: sitting there being Python man,
0: saying none oh, of our man. clients work. Please. Please let that's us. That's important. I'm glad you're there. It sounds no. like you're doing really important. They, they really hadn't thought of the negotiation because that's the first thing that comes to my mind.
1: So they had written the draft. Said, I don't know. We should probably negotiate this. Maybe. And I went back okay. and I went back and said, no, 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 you have it. to negotiate this. Like, it, that's not gotcha. optional, it's got to get done. Because not just the Python ecosystem is a mess, but it's safe to assume that lots of other languages and implementations have this exact same problem. Because no yeah, one. Yeah, because that's
0: really tricky to implement.
1: It's not actually that tricky to implement at all. The thing that's problematic about it is it's this extension. It's easy column.
0: to gloss over because yeah. it's not obvious that s- that's part of the spec.
1: Not obvious, and you don't see it anywhere, right? Like. Um, yeah, it's transparent. Because, yeah, because no one has written, like we only have basically two, uh, one hundred status codes that it, ever get used.
0: So people who the only people who would properly consume this is like Chrome and Safari, basically. Yeah, the browsers will get it right, um, and yeah. that's the browsers will get it right. And that's, and many that's in their mind when the ITF is doing this. That's basically what they're thinking of is is browsers.
1: Yeah, the browsers are the primary yeah. target. So for
0: the them, it's real easy to just be like, this is a new thing and mm-hmm. it works. And then they think about the old. But what about the old? phones that are running outdated stuff you yeah. know they still need a negotiation exactly. so that should still be in their mind yeah
1: and i mean the reality is like the community would have gotten to that point eventually but one you're of the advantages are of...
0: faster because you're breaking away from the browser entirely yeah because i was just like look
1: i know enough python code i know where all the implementations are i can write this this fake server real fast and then just test them all and yeah look they all explode um that's dumb
0: yeah okay okay
1: so that's really helpful and it's a neat thing to be able to, to bump into. So
0: th- that might—I don't know if you have more to say there—but that might be a good segue into why the standard library is a bad idea.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, we could certainly segue into why the standard library is a bad idea from there. Um, I do want to step back for a moment though, and and try and finish up like what this what this H two idea is. But like the high level of it is um, rather than us like so. I just said I looked at five different implementations that all explode, um, and they're all on—they've all got different code, but they all made the exact same mistake. And that's pretty dumb. Like, why, why do we have to fix the same bug five times? Um, yeah. That's pretty stupid, especially when there's no need for it. So H2, and now some sibling implementations, uh, are all predicated around this idea of, like, if you have one that you can use from everywhere, it doesn't matter how you're doing I.O. It doesn't matter if you want to use like deferreds or futures or, you know, insert your own I.O. mechanism here. Uh, It'll always work. That means that we get to kind of like focus our energies, right? So we wouldn't have to fix this once if we'd written an HTTP library from the beginning that didn't do any I.O. We wouldn't have to fix this five times, sorry. We'd only have to fix it once. Uh, And the way we could get away with it is, you know, fix it that one time, and then HTTP lib is plugging it into sockets, and Twisted's plugging it into Twisted protocols, and Async I.O. is plugging it into Async I.O. protocols and everyone's plugging it into their own specific thing. But they all kind of had this core flaw in them which they didn't understand. 1xx responses properly, and now they do. This is a, it turns out, like a really powerful idea. And is why um, URLib3 is in practice just going to end up being built on uh, exactly that kind of protocol uh, implementation, which is Nathaniel Smith's H11, which is uh, HTTP 1.1 version of H2. And that, with digression over, we can talk about uh, why the Standard Library is a terrible idea.
0: So. That was a mouthful. Yeah, right? (laughs)
1: Uh, So, Standard Library. Um, uh, I think you've got the most famous quote about the Standard Library, so uh, I feel like you should start from there, and then we'll talk about why we think that's true, and then what that means about the Standard Library more generally.
0: However, I want to say that it's slightly misappropriated and that I heard it somewhere else. I don't know oh, yeah. where from sure uh, I think I may have heard it from Guido. No, it wasn't from Guido well, You know what they say though good artists copy and great artists steal Yeah, whatever some people have said that I said uh, And I do say it all the time um, the standard library is where a library goes to die and it, I may have actually come up with that. I know other people have said similar things, at least. Yeah. It's a common um,
1: sentiment, I think, amongst people who've been working with the standard library for a while.
0: Guido, when I talked to him about it, his, his statement, uh, it was a private conversation. It was He's made the sentiment before that maybe the standard library should shrink and not grow, um, but what he said specifically was, you know, we're batteries included, but we have rusty batteries, um, and that's that's a kind of a, a good way of thinking about it. And that's what I mean by it's where a library goes to die. It's like if you just put a battery in, you know, and it, and you come back in four years, there's going to be all that leakage and the acid everywhere, and it's going to damage the device. And that's kind of what happens when a library goes into the standard library. It damages both the battery and. Python itself if it's something that needs to be actively maintained.
1: Yeah, and so I think that's the key bit, right, is so the standard library is hugely popular amongst Python programmers because it's nice to have all this stuff that's just here that you don't need to install. I get that, I genuinely do, because I was- And that's
0: kind of the thing that's really made it attractive to people when Python was becoming popular amongst web developers Mm -hmm. was the fact that, you know, Pip was not an obvious thing at one point in the time. Uh, it is ubiquitous now because it's part of Python. When you install it, it gets installed. Um, but you know, we used to have to pick like there was a, an actual like mantra that people recited, and it was like use pip, not easy install. And easy install was like that was like that was like the in people knew that you know that was like tribal knowledge. So in that world where you have to know the distribute was better than setup tools. Um, even though they appear to be the same and no one really knew in the status of either project, it was all insider information. Mm-hmm. Installing things was a detriment to the usability of software. Yeah. Uh, and so having a dependency in general was something that was kind of not looked at as a best practice. And that's why a project like Requests doesn't have dependencies. Oh yeah. Um and like and, and this is
1: an interesting one because we get requests that's brought up on this a lot. And uh, I, I always think it's worth pointing out like the the discussion we have in 2016, nearly 2017 about requests and dependencies is vastly different to the discussion we would have been having, having in 2012 when I started working on requests about dependencies. Like The amount of work, exactly. the amount of the quality of the work that not just Donald Stuffed, like the whole Python packaging ecosystem, but, but in particular Donald Stuffed has brought to PIP and to the Python Package Index the cheese shop over the last
2: And Giannis before
1: him. And Giannis before him. Like the amount of work that they have all done to turn Pip from like a works 20% of the time kind of joke of a thing into something that. Can actually reasonably want to use and depend on and for your infrastructure. And rely on
0: infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Like that's that's been huge, and it does like dramatically change the shape of this discussion. And
0: the shoe shop used to be a single server running in like Holland or something. Yeah, and you know it's amazing how far it's come, and the, the fact that the the codebase is still the same. It's been updated quite a bit, but. Mm-hmm. Is being rehauled very actively yeah. um, into a whole new project called Warehouse, but which the, is available now. Code base, people can use that if they that, want to. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole new package index, and it's being you know the migration is occurring. But that old that thing is so old. I went to go add S three support one day. I volunteered, and um, I couldn't even touch the code. It was it was so horrid, and it's amazing how much reliability they've added to the service. Because yeah. back in the day, when it, that time era I was talking about, like 2011, uh, I started at Heroku, and I was, you know, my task was add Python support. And so, in my mind, if you're a Python shop, the best practice was if you're relying on a piece of software that's a dependency, then you need to run your own version of the cheese shop with those dependencies backed up yeah. for reliability, because the cheese shop was so unreliable because it would go down all the time. Um, And I I basically, I just passed that feedback along and Donald's, like, fixed the problem where, like, you, package availability is never a problem don't. at all anymore don't. in any way, shape, or form. And there's yep. status that you can sign up for SMS alerts mm-hmm. for G-Shop issues, and it's incredible. It's a real piece of infrastructure. And yep. I we don't have any mirroring at all at Heroku, and we don't need it. We never have in the last five years. Yeah. Um, and, and like, that's just amazing how. a huge much amount of it's that software
1: development it. work that Donald's been doing uh, and also it's I, and I also think it's is really worth remembering is um, the, other, the other remaining bit of that the other remaining bit of that uptime comes from you know human sweat people wear pages for PyPI yeah, for free exactly like those, those <laughs> people are, are doing some kind of public service the likes of which I think most programmers would never dream of doing. I I
0: mean, you are in a way too, but yours is engineered so you don't have to wear a pager. Right. And that They're doing the ops for that. And that's
1: psychologically, I think, tricky. Like, I like buying those people, you know, insert beverage here because... Yes,
0: exactly. They
1: they need as much emotional support uh, as we can give them to do, you know, the last 10% of what is required to build a reliable service, which is... Sometimes people need to get up and fix some stuff.
0: Yep, right in the middle of the night.
1: Yep, and that's gross, but yeah, it's part of it. But anyway, we live now in this, in this moment where the Python packaging system, while still imperfect, is now good enough that you can reasonably say that it is not really dramatically more difficult to go and fetch a library from the Python package index than it is to get one from the standard library. It is. Correct. About the same level of difficulty. And that starts to raise not discussion.
0: only that, it's also true that it is effectively impossible to build anything without installing something. So there's no barrier to entry to pip install. Yeah. Pip install Correct. is no longer something that's like, oh, someone might not be able to use this piece of software. It is a mandatory piece of, of software development nowadays. There's nothing, mm-hmm. you're not going to build a Django app without pip installing something else.
1: No. You're not going to build any non trivial Python application without pip installing something. It's just going
0: to happen. Exactly. It's a requirement. It's not an optional thing anymore. Indeed. And it was then.
1: Right, exactly. And so that's, you know, you go, one of the advantages of the um, standard library was supposed to be, well, you have all these things that are just here, but they're now, in addition to all the things you have that are just here, there are all these other things that are just slightly further over here. And it's like, it's a nothing different almost non-existent increase in difficulty to go use those things so the question about the standard library becomes what advantages do you get by becoming part of a big distribution that has a number of real problems they've got real problems around the frequency with which they ship releases like if you want to get a new feature into the standard library you're not going to see it in the real world for another nine months at least it's just not going to happen if you need to get a security fix in, you're not gonna see it very quickly, and you might not see it in some old but widely deployed versions of Python, which is a real problem. Uh, and like more importantly Very, that,
0: very, very widely deployed. Indeed. Like astronomically, because <laughs> of REL. Yep. Thank you, RHEL. Um,
1: <laughs> it's a separate, separate point of pain.
0: But um In distribution is general. Yeah.
1: But uh, but on top of on top of all of that, you have this this remaining bigger problem which is
0: that um, you have to really think about that though every Mac that anyone owns has Python shipped on it and yeah. it's not the latest version correct
1: um, although they're doing pretty well I think the version of Python on Sierra is just yeah they're doing great actually but for a while they weren't yeah, 2710 is alright as it goes um, I'm running yeah but that's two releases behind it is two releases behind it'll, nearly, it'll be three soon um, and it's a modified version of Python and it's a modified version of Python correct uh, and it's linked against OpenSSL from 1954. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a separate complaint for another day. Um, Wait,
0: is that an actual year? No, but it's... I would believe you <laughs> if you said it was 70, 79 <laughs> yeah, or something. Not quite, a- but 84. a
1: long time ago. A long time ago. Um,
0: because SSL... Well, no, I would believe you if you said 93. I think... So
1: it's linked against OpenSSL 0.9.8. Um, the most recent security patch of 9.8, which admittedly is already two years old. Is the
0: reason that Apple does that because they have their own implementation built into the operating system, or does everything really rely on that? No,
1: no, so any Mac application, anything written using Mac APIs, uses uh, secure transport, which is built into the uh, OS.
0: Okay, and then OpenSSL is like—is—is is it a layer on top of that, or is its own? It's completely—it's separate.
1: It's completely a separate thing. It exists only for uh, tools that need to be linked against OpenSSL and can't be linked against anything else.
0: Um, so like Python and probably a few other built-ins, Ruby, like pa- I think uh, Apache. I think Apache used to be built-in. Yeah. Um, although, uh,
1: interestingly, they also have hidden floating around somewhere uh, LibreSSL. Oh, really? Yeah, which is being used by SSHD and the SSH client, I think.
0: Now, is that, that one's just a licensing difference, right? Or is it actually a separate project? It's a
1: separate project. LibreSSL has got a whole lot of changes and stuff in it to do so with... So it's a fork? It's a fork, yeah. It can be thought of as a hostile fork of OpenSSL. Is,
0: is one considered best practice over the other?
1: Uh, no. People will say the answer is yes, and those people are wrong. Uh, they are. And they
0: will say Libre is best practice. They will say
1: Libre is best practice. I think generally. Speaking, I've, I've that's heard much that much before. Uh, yeah, Libre is different, um, but it it's is. It's probably
0: not true. It's because of the ubiquity of OpenSSL.
1: Ubiquity of OpenSSL, but also the fact is, like at the time, so Libre came out of a like, will the cryptography
0: thing. library use it if it's available? Libre, I don't think it'll link against Libre. Um, okay, uh, so that's the answer that's the only answer I need yeah, right. basically um, is, is what, what is cryptography doing? Yeah,
1: and so cryptography interestingly has got a whole lot of bindings to the native OS ten stuff and oh. one of my other side projects is to get try to get to the point where we can use uh, OS X's native TLS stack in Python applications to provide TLS.
0: When it's available.
1: When it's available um, where the goal there is uh, to start dealing with litany of complaints that people—a small but very vocal minority of people—have about certificate management, yeah. and I don't want to, <laughs> yeah. and I don't want to belittle those people. Their complaints are real. Uh, they are a niche complaint, but they are real problems, and well, they should yes. be addressed eventually. But they have the disadvantage of being problems for whom addressing them, the amount of work so required is like vastly thing for us to more talk expensive.
0: About. So the certify project is a perfect thing for us to talk about um because you i started it and you kind of run it now and for the most part that's is that, that's a valid statement right
1: uh i think it's safe to say that i am the only person who ever touches it.
0: Um, yes <laughs> and you did a lot of work because you made make cert so mm-hmm. basically what i did was i wanted requests to work like a browser does and a browser if you're like Mozilla, ships their own certificates, because Mm -hmm. if you look and you try to make something cross-platform, and you look at any, I looked at HTTP 2, the HTTP lib 2 at the time, which was my competitor, Mm -hmm. to an alternative um, HTTP client for Python, and if you looked at its issues that were on Google Code at the time, they were all related to certificates, and so I was like, I want to avoid that problem entirely. So it just always works. So what I did was I took the Mozilla set of certificates and put them inside of requests. And so it uses that automatically, just like a browser does. Because re- requests often is influenced by the design of... A, almost always influenced by the design of how a web browser's like inspector works for HTTP. Because mm-hmm. that's how I learned how HTTP works. Sure. Um, and... And so I did that, and but then there's some like quirks when you take that certificate list and try to use it, and there uh, there's a, lot, a couple blacklisted certificates, and they're just in there, and if you just stick them in there, they'll actually be used as whitelisted. So I had to manually remove those, and uh, you know this is stuff I learned like as people submitted pull requests and issues, and this stuff isn't documented anywhere. Um, and so I learned a lot doing that. So I made a separate project called Certify, which takes that out and it's its own bundle and any language can download it and use it and it's great. And then you took that and you, you programmatically generate it mm-hmm. every time anyone downloads the list, it's created fresh, mm-hmm. um, which is fantastic. And this is something that I launched and I was real excited about. And I thought that people would be like, it's the next request, but no one gives a shit about this stuff at all. No. Um, so, because it's, it's like it's like people like you and me who care. So there's like a totality. I have a mailing list for the project, and it has like 39 people on it. Yeah. And request mailing list. My personal one is like 1,500. Yeah. Uh, so that just gives you an idea of the level of interest. People do not care about TLS at all. And so it's something that needs to be taken care of by the library vendors, by the browsers, by, this, by the other people. And that's why certificate management is important and why requests can't go into the standard library because it wouldn't be requests anymore. It would be something that doesn't work well. Tries, and then I know we added certificate validation by default, which is a new idea I came up with for requests and was a very successful one. And people thought that was a good idea, Donalds and friends. I checked with them, and um the other one was Paul Mcmillan. He was my other security advisor when I was starting requests, and they thought that the idea of automatic validation that always works was a revolutionary and a great idea, and like oh my god, that'll fix everything and it did and it and it 's standard now in Python, mm-hmm. when you make a request that you URL to, it does that, and I believe it uses the system certificates and it tries to find them automatically, yeah, and it often doesn't work
1: <laughs> yeah the There are a number of problems with all of that, Um, and in fact there's a more subtle problem with that than most people expect. So, like, on Linux, generally speaking, the idea of find the system certificates from OpenSSL mostly works.
0: means Uh, find a certain directory where they're all just splatted in, all the PEM files. Yeah, and that mostly, like, bizarrely does mostly work. Although... But sometimes there's multiple locations, or a valid location that's empty.
1: There are a number of wacky
0: situations in there, but like, Generally speaking, 99%
1: of the time on Linux, that does work. And in fact, it is possible now in EuroLib3, not possible in... there's no API for it in requests, but you'll be able to make it happen in EuroLib3, to, to do that on Linux. Like, if you
0: really, really have Don't to... Don't we have a function built in to try to find the system certs? Uh, Neuralib
1: 3 only started doing it very, very recently and only does it when oh, you we just, used
0: to a long time ago. Yeah, uh, we got rid of it because it doesn't work very well. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> it's also an attractive nuisance, and here's the problem. If you say find the system certs and you're on...
0: Windows. And you're someone like Amazon, though, that's like a requirement because mm-hmm. you're doing private certs. Yep. And if you're going to do a big rollout to your infrastructure, then that's a big deal. So, people who work at big companies, the one guy who's in charge of that stuff, he's the guy who's on our issue, mm-hmm. our long issue, talking about this, yep. him and Glyph. Yep.
1: <laughs> so, so the, um, the problem with that is, like, yeah, it works on Linux, great, good win. Doesn't work. So it's
0: like something that like, one person cares about, but affects literally every single human being on the planet. Right. But here's the problem.
1: If you want to say, okay, we'll just default to doing that then. Well, your Windows users, they get like 50% success rate. So Python has some hooks to get certs out from the Windows cert store. Uh, but the problem is, Windows doesn't download all of the root certs. Uh, when you install it, it goes and gets them on demand so oh. uh, and it doesn't the standard library doesn't know how to hook into that so
0: it doesn't so uh so it's only it only works with what's been accessed previously
1: uh what's been accessed previously by any part of the system but yes um correct so it's a cache uh yeah you can think of it as a cache like that it keeps hold of for a very long time um,
0: yeah and, so yeah because if you open up a fresh mac it has all of them pre-downloaded uh correct and in fact, and it does update them over time as well.
1: Correct, um, but the difference on the Mac is the stem library doesn't know how to get the certificates at all. Uh huh. Now that sometimes isn't a now, problem. No, it
0: does do, does it if you're using the the system version that comes with the Mac. The system
1: OpenSSL should be not used as much as possible because it doesn't do
0: certificate validation in
1: a way that makes any sense.
0: Because uh, it's using an old OpenSSL. Oh, because it is an OpenSSL.
1: All of these things, also because uh, surprisingly with, um, so th- and this is going to surprise a whole bunch of people, if you say to the system OpenSSL uh, on a Mac, here are the root certificates I trust, please validate this TLS connection. It will try to, and if it fails, it will then go and look at the system root certificates and validate based on that. And you cannot disable that fail- fallback lookup which means that you can yeah. actually cannot restrict your trust routes on, uh, on that system OpenSSL, And that's just really terrifying behaviour. It just quietly, silently does that.
0: You mean you can't blacklist one? Uh, correct. So if you passed...
1: If you said, you, I only want to trust this one root certificate in request by passing a path to the root certificate to the verify argument, um, if you're using the system open SSL on Python... uh in, so in OSN, just
0: like, I have a private cert for this private server, that's the only thing that should be valid. Yeah.
1: Uh, but it won't be the only thing that's valid. That, plus every other certificate in the OS X trust store will be and valid.
0: And that is a bug in OpenSSL 098? Not a bug. Not a bug.
1: Oh, Apple did it on purpose. Uh,
0: they and that's, that's the built-in OpenSSL that is that the is issue, the or the OpenSSL. Or built-in Python that's the it's issue? It's the built-in
1: OpenSSL that has that issue. So anyone using uh, Python on OS X should immediately avoid using the system Python and get Python from Homebrew or PyEnv. Uh, either of which will resolve this problem by building their own newer OpenSSL and using that. But they have a separate problem, which is that Homebrew's OpenSSL will go, when you install it, it will go into the system store and request every root certificate so it can write them out in a format that OpenSSL understands. But But it doesn't then update that list in any way. So if you blacklist one of those root certs, Homebrew doesn't know anything about it, so Python continues to trust it.
0: So it's not linked, it's just copied. It's just copied, correct. Um, so then you would have to uninstall and reinstall Python on a regular basis if you're one of those. Uh, it would be OpenSSL, people. in fact. And in fact, I think the updates okay. to
1: OpenSSL usually do resolve, the, usually do another export, but I'm not certain. I'd have to go back and look.
0: Anyway, and the, and the reason for this is because OpenSSL
1: cannot talk to it natively. Correct. And on top of that, <laughs> like if you really want the, you know, the nth level terrible, um, Windows. It, just to keep context, this is.
0: Also, a picture of why the standard library is a terrible idea. Yeah. Because these things are not solved yet, and they are core computer science problems. Correct. For the people, everyone who uses a computer Correct. today. And on top, so
1: and then on top of the, all of this,
0: even this idea of like, let's get the
1: system certificates on a Windows or a Mac machine, or for that matter, a Linux machine, where you want to use, say, NSS or GNU TLS instead of OpenSSL. The idea that you will ex- re- extract those certificates, pass them to OpenSSL, and say, validate, please makes no sense because OpenSSL's validation logic is different to the Windows default system logic or to the OS X default system logic, which means you will still get different answers. There might be situations where your browser will refuse to connect but OpenSSL says, cool, no problem, or the other way around, where your browser says, cool, no problem, and OpenSSL goes, I can't validate. And so you still get this subtle, unexpected deviation from good behavior. So what you really need to do is what curl does, which is have a backend for every TLS library under the sun. <laughs> Just be able to use all the TLS libraries. Or, alternatively, what Chrome does. Uh, and Chrome uses a fork of OpenSSL for all of its actual TLS protocol stuff, but always defers to the system TLS library for certificate validation. So essentially, it does yeah. all the handshakes, then it pulls the certificates out of OpenSSL that the PSA And that's data.
0: ideally what Python should be doing. This is in my
1: dream world what I would like requests to be able to do uh,
0: yeah. is we are easy. But that's Nine like months of work three, away from that. Yeah, which is more
1: like two years. Which is more like two years, correct. Uh, and part of the problem, part of the reason we're so far away from this is because there are literally two people in the Python ecosystem who are have any kind of time to work on this problem and the inclination or, to do
0: even it. Even interest or understanding on why yeah. it's important.
1: I mean, there's a few other people with interest and understanding. They just don't have time, right? Like, so Alex Gaynor, for example, our terribly absent co-host, uh, would be one person who would do this work if he wasn't busy with his vow of silence and spirit quest. Um, <laughs> but also, like, you know, Paul Carra, uh Hinnick, Glyph. These are all people with enough of a kind of interest and the aptitude to do it. Yes. But just no time. They have all this other stuff they have to do.
0: It's not that it, would, it would not be the first thing on their priority list, mostly because of wouldn't, how large of a project like, it would be. wouldn't be top ten.
1: it wouldn't be top ten. The only people in the Python ecosystem who care enough about this to, to spend any mental cycles on this problem are myself and uh, Christian Himes in the Python Standard Library, who is, in case anyone wants to know how terrible the TLS state of affairs is in the Standard Library, Christian is the only person who does any kind of regular work on the Standard Library TLS.
0: So praise be to him... Praise
1: be to him. Yeah, he's. It's uh, great. I
0: just thought of the name for this podcast while yeah. you were talking about all this. I'm going to call it the ninth, the nth circle of hell. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think that's a good name for it. It's uh, <laughs> it's everyone's experience of software development. I, I was
0: like, I could call it Corey Benfield on H2, the future of the standard library in SSL, and I was like, no, I'm just going to call it the eighth circle of hell. Yeah. no, it's the nth, the nth, the nth
1: circle. The nth, I think is correct. Yeah.
0: Because this is really as deep as it gets, is, as far as I'm concerned, on like the core reasons b- behind why standard library is a bad idea for like people are just like, oh, what, request should obviously be in the standard library, and it's like the reasoning behind why that's a bad idea is so exponentially large. Yeah. It's but it's subtle, you know, and yeah. so I think it's good to talk about it because it's. Yeah. And so, like, to you know, to make it explicit for
1: the people listening who haven't haven't made the mental leap, the reason this is a problem is. While Requests is a third-party library, fixing these problems only requires that I write relevant code. I only have to answer to myself. Uh, in the case of Requests code, I have to also answer to you. But like, the scaffolding around it, bindings to third-party TLS libraries, all this other stuff, I only have to write it and I don't have to wait for a Python release to get it in. I don't have to make
0: the in case if, that it should yeah, be backported. And if you're like a pip, for example, mm-hmm. pip uses Requests and pip is embedded, our request is embedded within pip, mm-hmm. uh, and that's only possible because a request only relies on the standard library, correct? And if a request is in a standard library, then pip will have to or would have to do its own version of requests or something that's inside any, of it, any
1: other number of wacky problems. But like the second you go into the standard library, you are tied to the standard library release cycle, you are t- tied to the standard library review cycle, you are forced to get your Patches and fixes through the standard library process, and while the standard library developers deserve as much credit as possible for the amount of work they do, there are like one quarter as many of them as there needs to be in order for that yeah. organization to function effectively. And
0: and there are some benefits too. I did um, a talk at the uh, Python Language Summit two years ago where I kind of just gave the pitch deck on why it shouldn't be in the standard library. Mm-hmm and the pros and cons and, and stuff like that. And my, my conclusion was that you know, the, the pros or maintenance would be harder and more difficult for sure for us, but it would be easier to get funding if you wanted to get something in, you know, like, like adding H2 support, you know, that, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think if you wanted to get the PSF to pay you, they would do it in a heartbeat, uh, for what you're doing now. Well, um, well that's a
1: separate discussion that you should try and have with Donald sometime. Um,
0: well, that's well. very true. But I, I guess I'm saying the the funds are there. I don't think that that would increase the ability that much. Uh, but the big thing I I determined was that, you know, I was away once or something and there was a CVE and you two pushed to release out within 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if this was C Python, it would be four or six months. Yeah. And that's the, that's two where requests is security. Um, security optimized um, inf- critical infrastructure for the Python community. It's too critical to be in the standard library, and that was my conclusion. Yep, and I think that's right. And everyone in the room agreed, basically.
1: I think that's right. I mean, at a certain point, you you want to ask the question about whether or not a standard library is better served as being exactly enough code to bootstrap pip and yes. no more. Like pip needs enough code to be able to get a secure network connection to start downloading packages. And then once it can get that, it can get everything else it needs to do anything more than that. And also that takes every takes a
0: tremendous care. amount of work for us to go backwards. So yeah. it's always easier to add something than to remove something. And so, no question. you know, we have what we have and we have our S- SMTP server, and you know what, it works pretty well. And I'm kind of glad that it's in there. It's like a neat little toy. Yeah. And you can could, you could really run a really basic SMTP server that serves millions of users on that thing. Yeah, and that's Uh, great.
1: Like, I I maintain that that's great. The problem with it is there's this...
0: I guess... There's an inclination that, like, if something's good, it needs to go in. And that's the problem. And then
1: there's this flip side of it as well, which is that there's this view that the standard library is good enough. Right? Like, once something's in the standard library, it takes people another extra leap of mental effort to go, well, why should I download a library to do the same thing that the standard library can do? Why would I use
0: requests when there's URLib2? Yeah, and that's a genuine...
1: Discussion that gets brought up on almost any time a request blog post or anything shows up on a chat in in Hacker News or in Reddit, there'll always be yeah, someone always that, standing there, a yeah.
0: type of person who's
1: like, yeah, or like, David Kramer. Why would I have <laughs> a
0: dependency? <laughs> exactly. Now, to be clear, <laughs> David, David Kramer's Kramer's in argument the, is much more want... reasonable. <laughs> David Kramer is like me. He's like I don't want to have dependencies yeah. in I, I my get, software. I get David Kramer's argument there, but really he, doesn't, do. he doesn't. He doesn't think that you two can... is good. <laughs> it's not. He doesn't understand that you can copy. Just the folder over into your repo and then it works. Yeah, I mean I presume he does and has some
1: rationale for not wanting to do that either, which I'm not gonna go well, into. He, I'm me not and he him can...
0: have like a silent competition thing yeah. from back in the day. Yeah. It's not there anymore. You can I invite, haven't talked to him in years. Yeah, you can invite He's him on the show. He's one of my favorite people. people.
1: You can invite him on the show we're and he'll like, do it. He'll he'll make the case. We were like,
0: like secret arch nemesis for a little bit. Yeah. It was really funny. Yeah.
1: But like regardless, the the upshot of it is there's this once something's once there is a version. Of something in the standard library, it's very hard to build a better version and encourage people to actually use it. Uh,
0: and yes. So, this Which ba- we are very successful at, but I can't think of any other projects like that. Like, I want to build a subprocess library. That would be better. And yeah, subprocess is always going to be the subprocess library. Yep. Like, it's just going to be there. People are gonna you're, use... you're not going to have that problem with H2 because there's not going to be an H2 implementation anytime soon. If there is going to be an H2, uh, but H2 implementation. But maybe with I/O. sync.io.
1: Uh, no, they're not, no one's going to... The, again, like, H2 is just going to save people so much work that that there's no reason to write your own. Uh, it's just... But
0: someone might build a request on top of async.io and put that in the standard library. Or, an async, yeah. or a request like API. They talk about yeah. that a lot. They do. And that, that would be an and interesting And I library. have a fear of that, because I think that would be bad, not good.
1: I think it would be bad, not good, but I also have... yeah. You know, the longer you do this, at a certain point, you start to, or at least I do, I start to feel, you know, happy about the day where I can stop working <laughs> on that specific problem. Like, you, you sit there and you go, look, actually requests from a certain perspective, you know, there's a whole lot of under-the-covers work that we do all the time to fix these weird little edge cases so they just work for people like one of if we're things- just
0: making something that's like like it's like the philosopher's stone yep. we're always approaching it and we're never going to get there yep. but we're like it's good enough where if you stand back like 3 feet it is that thing yeah. you know and then you know there's like 60% of the things
1: people want that, that subtly misbehave. They affect, you know, one. of are like,
0: we get to a certain level when H two comes out, and you're like, you're like, oh, there's these things called like the God particle. You know, <laughs> we have to figure out how how qubits work. You know?
1: Yeah, everything's everything's stupid yeah. complicated. But like, the reality on this is going to be. <laughs> so so here's my bold prediction.
0: Yeah, request like prefers to be at the Newtonian physics level of reality, and like you are operating at the quantum level. Yeah, and and it's like. There's it's not fermented yet, where we don't really know what's going on there. There's still we're still in discovery phase, yeah. we're not in discovery phase in Newtonian physics. No. We know what the hell's going on, yeah, no. on at a macro scale, yeah, or what we perceive exactly as a macro scale. So.
1: But so, as a bold prediction on this, trying to tie together some of the themes in this podcast, I reckon that either the standard library will never grow an HTTP2 implementation in any form, or it will, uh, solve it's HTTP2 problem by vendoring H2. Um, Like... Requests well? No, 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 the standard library. Um, I think the standard library, like, if it wants HTTP2, the standard library is almost certainly gonna do that by just taking a released version of H2 and shoving it in the standard library. And if it does that, then at that point... Or I think
0: a more appropriate approach would be like, just like if we have ensure pip, we would have like ensure requests or ensure networking libraries or something.
1: Yeah, but at a certain point, you sit there and you go, well, w- once you start having that Ensure, that's just the same as, a you know, here are some good networking libraries requirements.txt. And why would you not just have <laughs> that instead? You know, we've already got Ensure pip, so you don't need the Ensure everything else. Don't shove them in the standard library and force them to be that way.
0: Yeah, and I should say the end result of that meeting was that if you go to the URLib2 documentation of Python 3, it gives you a link to the request documentation at the top. Yeah. Which is and cool. And documentation is uh, honestly the easiest way to... Information is the easiest way to solve this, not technology. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the work that I do now is less on the technology side and more on the information side. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm doing the podcast and, and I just write blog posts and stuff is because... I just enjoy talking about code more than I do writing it. Yeah, which is fair enough because I understand it all, and I, you know, it's I've kind of been there, done that when it comes to writing stuff. I, I wanna, I love talking about it though. Yeah. So, so you know, when H two comes out, it, there might be a great document in the in stand in the Python documentation that says, it's kind of like the Python guide does now, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python is like use H two. That could be like assimilated that concept into the. Python documentation itself. Yeah, and I mean, um, I think,
1: and I think one way that we we resolve this problem just by not even thinking like about it. like a
0: five-minute fix as opposed to a five-year fix. Yeah. You
1: know? Although there's also just uh, the cultural value of the standard library not having an HTTP two implementation and not saying anything about mm-hmm. it. Like just exactly. Don't, just don't go there. And if you don't go there, and that's the a the community. It's a to community, build community the best problem,
0: best not a. It's a social problem, not a technical problem. Yeah. Right. And I think the community.
1: Can build the best version of H2 that they that they dream of. Like we, we the library is already awesome. It's not hard to contribute to. The code's pretty clear. It's extremely well tested. Like it's a pretty easy project to get to if you know how HTTP/2 works. Which means it's going to attract those who do to fix their specific problems, and then everyone gets the joy of that fix. And that's a great community solution with a much faster release cycle. Than the Python standard library, and that supports older versions of Python, which is also a huge win.
0: And then there's also the discussion that people have brought up before, which is I think Clojure does this, where they have a standard library, but it's a separate download and it's versioned by date.
1: Uh, Rust is doing this as well. Rust's getting rid of its standard library and having like a, a an unstandard library, or I feel kind of like. What
0: C, just, I think C kind of does that, where they have. C some doesn't larger... have a standard library. They've got Boost. Well, no. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, where they're, like, these large libraries that, that you kind of choose to build on or not, and then... Yeah,
1: Boost is a bad example. I have very... I have Boost installed on my Mac for... God knows why, I don't even remember now, but about once every couple months, Boost needs an update, and then what that that's means some, is... some,
0: like, sound program that uses it. Yeah,
1: who the hell knows, but it does mean that it takes four hours to compile, which is just thoroughly unacceptable.
0: Um... But I could see that where, like, ensure standard library yeah. is a thing. But I don't like that. I think that that would reduce the stability and usability of Python. And honestly, we both know that that is never going to happen. No, I don't think it's going to happen either.
1: But I do think as a, as a I nearly said society, but that's not right, as a community, the Python <laughs> community is warming up like to that, the, the idea. I like that, society
0: of yeah. Pythonistas. Right.
1: But we're warming up to this idea that, that we can build libraries that are better than the standard library and to... Avoid the need the the kind of knee jerk reaction of wanting to shove them into the standard library.
0: Yeah, um, there, we should. If you're gonna ever add anything, it's permanent, and it's permanent. And then, so then we also there was a talk as well about adding things in some kind of interim status, uh, and that was because of requests. And luckily, that is no longer on the table, I believe. Although async I O is in that, I believe, isn't it? Where it's yeah, like I think, not. I think they're free,
1: but that that's I mean they don't actually update faster in Python then they would otherwise. They just use that as a statement that basically says, we're not making promises about APIs here. Um,
0: this is beta. Yeah. And they're getting rid of that soon, and I think. Python itself isn't beta, but this part of it is. Because yeah. to me, the standard gonna... library isn't the standard library, it's Python. Like, Python is the standard library. They're not separate items in my mind. Yeah. And, like, and that's why a request does not belong in Python. It is not, a, it is not Python, it's, it's requests. It's its own brand. You yeah, know. correct. And I think the Python... And if something has its own brand, it shouldn't go in. You know, Flask does not belong in a standard library. Bottle might, because Bottle does have a brand, but it's small enough where it could be assimilated.
1: Yeah, but at a certain point, like, you assimilate Bottle, and then the first question everyone asks is, why have you put in Bottle, why it's not the best solution to this problem? And that's this fundamental mindset that we still need to get past, which is the idea that the things in the standard library are the best solution to their problem. They are almost always yeah. the... Lowest common denominator solution to their problem. Like, like
0: URL 2 was... <laughs> Even calling it, it URLib2. Was...
1: URLib2 was solving the wrong problem. That's URLib2's bigger issue.
0: But it solved every possible use case. Yeah. And that was its problem. Yeah. And it wanted to be this it? very
1: generic URL opener. And as it turned out, being a URL opener was not a thing that anyone wanted. What people wanted was a really <laughs> good HTTP library.
0: And, well, it was written at a different time yeah, right? when like FTP and HTTP were interchangeable ideas, yeah. you know?
1: And it's really like it's cool and fun to hate on URLib2. <laughs> <And> file,
0: <call. laughs> and that, I, we still get that issue every once in a while, adding yeah. file oh. colon slash slash support. Yeah. And I remember when I, re- I had to explicitly, because when, when request was incepted, I built it on top of URLib2, mm-hmm. and I had to explicitly, you know, I had to whitelist protocols yeah. and say if this if this is a file, Thing, ignore this, and people were like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, use your brain for half yeah. a second and think about that statement. Yeah, HTTP you know, is security. not the
1: other <laughs> forms of protocols. Like, <laughs> just don't. But, so, the, like, the, the high-level thing here is, ultimately, we are, we're not, I think, generally speaking, the Python community is not, increasingly not interested in the lowest common denominator solutions to problems that are available in the standard library. They are willing Correct. and able to go and get something better to solve their specific problem. And I think that is really powerful. I think that freedom to, to go away and say, we can depend on things that aren't in the standard library, that have faster release cycles, that fix their bugs quicker, that backport to older versions of Python, um, and, and not worry so much about what is floating around in the standard library. And the standard library becomes an increasingly vestigial part of Python that we need less and less from. And that's really good. There are some yeah, modules. And then over
0: time it can ideally shrink in size yeah. as we go to Python four and five yeah. or whatever. What shrink in
1: size? Be refactored so the bits that actually matter get pulled out into their own sensible parts or that you know we learn to emphasize the right stuff. Like the JSON module in the standard library probably should stay. Carverite. good good example oh. of a thing there, because the spec doesn't move around,
0: right? Yeah. yes it's a firm thing and it's so mandatory in today's world there's yeah. no reason for it not super to be super useful to have it there
1: but anything where the and spec moves around quickly or that is touching because you've easy.
0: seen the world where there wasn't a de facto JSON and it was not pretty and yeah. there was UJSON and, and simple and JSON and you I think the one that is my understanding is that the JSON that's built in is simple JSON yeah, I think so yeah, and so at one point in time, it was still best practice, even though it was still there. Yeah. Uh, 2.6, you would still install simple JSON because you got C extensions, yep. which weren't built in. But that's no longer the case so, in 2.7. So here's the thing. And, and like, so that's why like, the standard library is sometimes a great idea. Mm-hmm. Sure, no question. So here's the thing like tre- trending this, this along a little bit. Let's talk about
1: async.io. So async.io is in the standard library now. And a whole lot of people complain. They say, why did we add async IO to the standard library without updating all the protocol libraries in the standard library to work on async.io? Yes. And my answer to that is, I think async.io has a standard library, and that standard library is twisted. Ah. So async IO, async.io's actual goal is to provide a common event loop.
0: That all of the other event loops can tie
1: into. Correct. So in the newest version of Twisted, in Twisted sixteen five, I think that's what it's on. Um, you can run on the async I/O event loop. You could say, "Please install the async I/O reactor," and it will run on the async I/O ah, event loop.
0: I didn't know that. Yep.
1: Tornado can do it too. Uh,
0: and I know. I know the original goal was like, it's a common API that gevent and eventlet. Gevent and eventlet
1: aren't going to go into it. I mean, they could, but they won't.
0: Uh, but, but they could. Yeah. That's the idea: is that all of them could have one API, and then if you write any code on top of any of those, you would just write it for the for Tulip, I think it was called. Yeah, and it would just work. Yep. Yeah. But so, I think when people say, "Why is there no HTTP?"
1: You know, why? Why? But doesn't... then you
0: have why? But then there's why not have a default uh, event loop? You know? Wow, so so, they they, so we do have one. Yeah, indeed.
1: that's the correct thing, and that's the thing that you want to standardize, like the the standard library's job should be much more about standardizing interfaces than it should be about implementing stuff. Like, don't yeah. don't worry about having a an async I.O. based SMTP server in the standard library. That's not a yes. problem the standard That's library the should solve. That's the old way of thinking. Yeah. But agree on how do we do event loops in Python? Like, what does make that it, look make like?
0: It, make it so there's one obvious way to build that thing. Yeah. And then build on top of it. And then so Twisted gets
1: to be, you know... This, this gives everyone these huge advantages. Now, Twisted... This
0: mentality is so important, and I think that... it I, I hear it shared between people like you and me at PyCon when we're talking, but I think it needs to be documented somewhere. Well, because...
1: Yeah, this is one of these problems where there's like, there's a kind of a shadowy async cabal um, that met at the last uh, PyCon. So the last PyCon managed to get, in a room, uh, a whole bunch of people from different event loop. Implementation. So the twisted people were in the room. The async I O people were in the room. People who write protocols were in the room. People who wanted to use these things were in the room, and they were all sitting there saying, "All right, look, what is the, the last mile that is keeping us from being unable to interrupt like the way we should? Because the real goal of async I O isn't to kill twisted; it is to resurrect twisted. <laughs> it is to resurrect twisted." <laughs> uh, in a form yeah, if you look at the accessible. Google
0: Trends for Twisted, it's fascinating because it built slowly, slowly, slowly over time from the ancient, ancient times, and it's, it's it is going down very slowly. Uh, I mean, but it's so slow; it's like yeah. it, it has so much momentum, it's or inertia built up that key, is not a key dying thing with for Twisted. ten, fifteen years on its current curve. Twisted's not dying. But it is losing interest, and in it it should be doing the opposite soon. I hope. I I mean maybe.
1: But I suspect the reality for Twisted is going to be that um, Twisted They're the only people
0: that are actually working in this space. Yeah, so that's what I think
1: is going to happen is that Twisted is going to find itself all of a sudden the subtle way that things are done.
0: So have you been... I have a question for you that you might be able to answer. I don't know the answer to this. Why is Twisted not a default whiskey container?
1: As in, why don't people choose to use it as a whiskey container?
0: Yeah, I, I've almost never. I mean, I see all the Heroku apps. I've almost never seen people run their gener- like their Flask apps, with uh, Twisted as the server. Uh, and it seems to me like that, that should be a best practice, or or could be a best practice because of how well Twisted is built. Do you know the answer to that question?
1: I think the answer is that the Twisted community has historically uh, and is currently. Uh, has a substantial documentation problem. Uh, yeah. And so the biggest problem really is that it is not very easy to find that twisted is a whiskey container or if you want to use it as a whiskey container how you do that.
0: Or what its performance characteristics are. What its are. performance
1: characteristics are, or what its features because are.
0: Because ideally, you would just do have it run on Twisted, and then turn on Gevent, and then it's just like, brrr, or use PyPy, yeah, and Pi-Pi everything is, should just be Pi-Pi's like, make it fast.
1: So here is the thing: if there, okay, so I don't know why I'm burying this right at the end of the podcast. No one will hear it. But <laughs> here is a key thing: if you're running a whiskey application, you should know that with the most recent release of Twisted, you can run using only dependencies, no configurational programming of any kind. Well, no programming of any kind, some very moderate configuration, but all well on the command line. You can run your WSGI application with automatic free TLS using Let's Encrypt, with HTTP2 support, out of the box, using Twisted, no extra code of any kind. You can pip install Twisted with a couple extra dependencies, pip install, uh, and then run your WSGI application, get HTTP2 and TLS for free. Like no. Well, work let's skip
0: TLS because like no one wants to terminate TLS themselves. Uh, imagine it's a Heroku app. Well, you, Wait, it, you have it, to terminate. They can the, just install
1: Twisted, right? You yeah. I mean yeah, but you have to terminate the TLS in order to get HTTP two. You can't get HTTP two to the. Oh, Heroku that's true. Backend.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah uh,
1: sorry. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, regardless, on Heroku, the 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 advantages are still present. Like you can still get a blazing fast Whiskey container. It just happens to be the case that if you're deploying your application and you are terminating your own TLS, uh, you can do that for free zero configuration just pip install some stuff and your WSGI application will run like it is z- zero effort
0: and not only will it run it should in theory run uh as fast as possible it'll right. run as
1: fast as possible it'll handle multiple concurrent connections like at, at a certain point you do want to throw go. it
0: on pypy because it's a pure python implementation it's, exactly it's the, the async loop so you should just it's pure ideally. python
1: implementation the whole way down it's pure python http or HTTP 2. Ideally, if you're doing a lot
0: of CPU-bound stuff in your application, it should be a lot faster. If it's all I.O. bound, it may be slower, it nah, may be faster. Python will still be faster. Um, well, it depends on memory, and and yeah. if you're it's the great, with strings, it's the great you myth. have compiled. It's the great myth of modern programming. that uh, My I'd big thing now I/O is deciding between problems. UCS2 and UCS4 is, for my next Python release. There's nothing to decide. I'm worried... <laughs> What, well, because every build on Python has been UCS. On Heroku has been UCS2. Yeah. And I want to switch it to four because that's what all the Linux um, distros use. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's a lot of memory overhead. It is a lot of memory overhead. But so, and if, and if, you're doing, if you're on a memory-constrained system like us, um, that could slow down your application because it's all string processing, a uh, web application.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, the so I
0: haven't I haven't done any tests, but my inclination is just switch it over probably won't actually impact anybody, but might have might have measurable impact.
1: Yeah, well, you can switch it over, or you can A B test it and um, get some metrics and try and work out uh, what it does. Yeah,
0: I, I just want to think about it a lot before I just do it, That's probably, because it, it's mostly an issue of wheels. Sure. Cause, uh, We'll negotiate UCS2 versus UCS4, which, for our listeners, is uh, UTF-16 versus a haphazard version of uh, UTF-8,
1: I think. uh, UCS-4 is UTF-32. UCS-2... 32, yeah. UCS-2 is the bit of UTF-16 that was before the Unicode Consortium realized there were more than 65,000 glyphs they were going to need. Uh, Yeah, it,
0: it doesn't support all of them. It only supports, like, the first... The the first chunk instead dumb. of
1: infinite chunk. It's like the worst form of UTF16.
0: Yeah, so I so I want to make it so uh, the the built-in strings in Python can support every character, not just all the ones we know about. Um, and so I'm gonna do that yeah. eventually here. Uh, but it's you know these are like real weird quirks. So why isn't that default? UCS2 is default when you build Python. Yeah, it's because uh, it's
1: because we didn't know what we were doing.
0: <laughs> I think they might have changed that in 3, no, I'm not sure. 3
1: changed the entire thing. There was no discussion about wide versus narrow builds at 3. 3 changed the internal representation of strings altogether.
0: S- okay. Strings now so have, there is no UTSC4 in... I don't have to make that decision for 3?
1: No. So, okay. in Python 3, for a Unicode string, it will always use the most efficient of 3 possible representations. If all the, oh. if all the code points are less than 256, it will use the Latin 1 backend uh, for strings. Otherwise, if they're all in the lowest 65k, so there's nothing in Astral Planes, it'll use uh, (laughs) UTF-16. Otherwise, it will use UTF-32 if it has to.
0: I like the Astral Planes for Unico. That's perfect. It's a good plan. Uh, I think that's right. Maybe it uses
1: UTF-8 in some place, but I don't think it does. I think it's always fixed width. Um,
0: It should be fixed width. That'd be more unpredictable. Fixed width
1: is not... That important in most cases. Like it is, it. it
0: oh, I, just, I think it just makes it more predictable for computational uh, reliability. So it makes it more scalable, basically.
1: Yeah, it makes certain things a little bit easier, but usually that ease is ends up being um, not in in most cases ends up being not outweighed by the
0: uh, increased it, it, it memory. Just of it just evens
1: out. Yeah, it comes out more or less identical.
0: Uh, yeah, but if you're an operating system, you're going to want to use fixed width
1: yeah even there I'm not sure that those most of the operating systems have made good decisions on that front <laughs> and I think
0: see this is all this stuff that I love talking about and that like I only ever get in verbal communication with people I don't ever yeah. find but I, I don't think you could find an interesting blog post about this or I don't know I just, I, I just I think the bigger I like problem is how the hell that, do you
1: write one like uh, every time I ever try to write a blog post like this it just always comes out super
0: boring yeah exactly because you wanted to talk So pod, like, podcast kick is a good right? form yeah. where you actually have the conversation. Indeed. All right, so uh, I, I wanted to ask the whiskey question. I'm glad you answered it. So I want to play around with that more myself. Yeah. Uh, tw- twisted is something that I've only used for Twisted Conch. Oh, yeah. Um, which is great. And Heroku used to use that for every SSH receive on the whole platform yeah. for years. Uh, we don't anymore, That I think. Um, but it worked. You know, it, it handled hundreds of millions of, of get receives um, uh, which is awesome mm-hmm. because it lets you programmatically you know change what you're accepting yeah. for the SSH keys and it's such a beautiful piece of code um, I mean I'm I'm and, 100% on this like I think the Python community
1: has done Twisted we should like get like people who like,
0: like us who know that Twisted is amazing but like for me it's unapproachable I don't know what I'd ever do with it or yeah. I think there needs to be like Twisted for humans, but it needs to only exist in text form. I
1: mean, the reality is that the Twisted, Twisted needs a whole bunch of people to come in, sit down, understand it, and then write just a whole load of really approachable documentation that doesn't assume that you know everything about everything, and it says, look, you have this problem you need to solve, what is the simple version of this interface? And then as we are doing that, the Twisted community can sit there and go, this interface is garbage because there is no simple version of this interface that we can look at, we need to rewrite it. Like, there needs yes. to be a documentation-led approach in cleaning up some of twisted stuff. Now, the Twisted yes, community yes, knows yes. this, but the Twisted community's got like five people who are even remotely active <laughs> at any one time. And that's a That's, that's a what's so
0: impressive about the project, is that they, they seem to me to be the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, yeah in I, everyone i've ever interacted with I've, it's been i think three I, i've met jessica but i haven't interacted with her too much and, but she gives off a vibe of being very intelligent as well yeah but the in-depth conversations i've had with glyph and, and two of the other guys about topics all over the place have just been some of the most intellectually stimulating conversations i've ever had yeah
1: so how, i've got a little story because uh i know we are coming to the end of our time but i've got a little like Tail me out story now that you brought up Glyph and Twisted as, and and held Glyph up as one of the smartest people you know. So I have this very regular pattern where once every few months, I'll have this like stunning insight into software development in some way. (laughs) Like I'll suddenly sit there and go, oh, I understand this profound thing that I didn't understand before in this really and You have to tell Glyph about it. No, it's not even that I have to tell Glyph about it. It's that I'll go, I'll get really excited about it, and I'll mention it in an IRC channel or whatever, and then someone will come in and go, oh yeah, Glyph wrote a blog post about that in 2011. <laughs> and I'll just be like, oh how can this be? And every time I've, I find myself in this place where I'm like, Glyph's had all my ideas, all of my understanding, many, many years ago. And I've just somehow never correctly managed to like absorb it from him. And this happens a lot, (laughs) like a lot through my life. I find myself going, oh, now I understand the real important bit of Glyph's insight, which I thought I had understood before, but I didn't. That's
0: funny. Yeah,
1: it's it's getting annoying now. Like I find myself, I'm just a-
0: So he's like you, but like five years in the future, but that actually means you're five years in the future as well. I think the way to think about it is that
1: I am a low rent Glyph. Like I am the second best version of Glyph.
0: That's probably a bit optimistic. Oh. Like I'm the fifth oh, wow. best version of a Glyph. So like, yeah. Well, it depends on how you're measuring. I'm yeah, sure, sure it goes in multiple dimensions. Well, right? certainly, yeah. But uh, in a certain dimension, you're the second best Glyph. Yes. Uh, yeah. At least in terms of profundity, I am. You know, <laughs> profundity. I am
1: not quite as good as Glyph, uh, which is
0: desperately disappointing. Well, let's not measure goodness. That's, that's not a... No, but it depends a, on what metric you're measuring. It's purely a measure right? of so.
1: profundity. That's what it's a
0: measure of. Now, what is that? On profundity. That's quite a statement, man. Yeah, right? I thought so. For the wow. appropriate for the appropriate Wow. I like the, the confidence there. Yeah. <laughs> profundity.
1: Well, no, no, no. I said only that I'm second to Glyph, not where that puts me in an overall rank.
0: <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. Ranking myself only against Glyph. I just like his handle. It's fantastic. His handle is fantastic. If, if you listen to the podcast where I opened up, I was like, I said something about that. And I said, that's an interesting name for some, for a man on the internet. And he was like, is it better for a woman? It was really funny. <laughs> he's a funny man.
1: He is a, yeah. he's a funny man. He's good to work with. I highly recommend people who haven't to go read his blog. He has good thinks about many different things.
0: Yeah, or if you're in San Francisco, strike up a conversation with him because it, yeah. I, they're always really entertaining yeah. for me. We talk about... Uh, we don't even talk about code. We just talk about stuff. Life. It's great. Yeah. Yep. So in closing, uh, do you have any questions for me, or things for the audience for me? Uh,
1: I mean, I think actually yours is the best one, which is I think people should people should go and play with Twisted as a whiskey container. People people should try and, and rediscover Twisted. Try and approach it from a perspective of not looking for things to hate, because you will find them. There are things to hate everywhere. Don't look for things to hate. Do you think look that there's room like.
0: for a G-Unicorn, like, runner for w- Twisted? I mean, if- Twisted, this is
1: one of the things about Twisted. Twisted's got its own run- G-Unicorn equivalent runner. Like, it doesn't need a Yeah, G-unicorn. but I'm talking
0: about for, like, a marketing perspective, you know? I mean, w- where it's maybe? Like, where people are like, use... Use, uh, you well, know, it you wouldn't could, be conch, but it would be yeah. something else. Like, use DNA or you something, write, you could know. write a little wrapper around... Use Helix. Yeah, <laughs> Use Helix. <laughs> you and could write it's a little the wrapper great new server that runs on Twisted. And, but, you know, yeah. but like, and it just has better, well, like, command line
1: args Great new server that runs on Twisted. Here's the other dirty little secret. Everyone's really excited about Django Channels. The Django Channels reference server is a Twisted web server. Ah, oh, there you go. Yep. So, it is... Twisted is very, very much still around. Uh, and is now part of one of the biggest software projects in the Python ecosystem.
0: So. so does that mean that every single request for Django apps that are using channels goes through Twisted? Yeah. And it, so it's using a Twisted server? Yeah. Because you don't use Geonicorn when you're, use, when you're using that system, right? Nope, you use Daphne. And Daphne is a Twisted application. Okay. Yeah, that's right. See, that's, see Twisted is, is kind of like H2, but a level up, yeah. but also a level below.
1: Yeah. I mean, on the, dependency tree, <laughs> on the dependency tree, it's a level up. Twisted depends on H2. Oh,
0: okay. There you go. But it but it also implements H2, doesn't it? It implements... Or it could. It implements
1: HTTP2 yeah. using H2. Like, H2 is its HTTP2 implementation.
0: But if H2 didn't exist, it would have implemented it itself.
1: Uh oh, maybe. I don't know who would have done it except me.
0: Yeah. But that's kind of like what it does, is it implements all the protocols. Yeah. It was a lot of work getting HTTP2 support
1: into Twisted, because uh, I had to clear out a whole lot of cruft. Uh, but it, on the other hand, it is in there, uh, whereas I, I look, took one look at the amount of work required to do it for AIO HTTP and just gave up.
0: So, uh, other takeaway, if you want to consume HTTP2 on Python, is the best practice currently to use Hyper with requests?
1: Uh, that is pretty close to the best practice, yep. Yeah, but the real, real best practice, if you want to do it at scale, it's probably to build a custom implementation that does exactly what you want using h2. Uh, it's not that hard. there's quite a lot of documentation that shows how you put this stuff together.
0: Uh, and so it would be kind of like a curl style like you're using libcurl but it would be with python.
1: yeah, and it'd be even lower level than that like you'll need to you'll need to write your own um, integration with io
0: in most cases. Uh, but you know, if you're but that but i'm talking about if you're a normal person you're a and you want a normal wanted... person yeah, requests and hyper is the way to go. And then if, if you're on the server side, uh, Is there any just use Twisted uh, with in any and so if you're using Twisted, you said it'll serve H over H2. It'll serve a Whiskey app over H2? Yep. See, that's I didn't know that.
1: Yep. So the Whiskey basically because Twisted is for you know many, many complaints people have about Twisted, but it is well factored. The bit that talks http 2 is orthogonal to the bit that talks Whiskey, you just plug them into each other. So you say serve an HTTP2 server direct it to the Whiskey thing uh, when requests come and in and
0: it and all the ma- and you get do you are any of the benefits of H2 lost when you do uh, that the
1: only thing we don't do right now is we don't do server push um, and that's probably okay is that
0: SSE uh,
1: not really no basically the server can kind of preemptively say you're going to need this and and send uh. it down as you go uh, right now Twister doesn't have any support but there. that's
0: but that's because Whiskey doesn't support that
1: uh, yeah, whiskey, you'd have to smuggle it through in a link header and then Twisted would need to parse the link header. It's a totally tractable problem, I just haven't written the code for it yet.
0: Now, does it... And it supports WebSockets as well? Does it Twisted make su- that available as, Twisted, like, WS or something? Twisted does support WebSockets
1: using a third-party library called autobahn. Uh So oh, if, you, if you install okay. autobahn,
0: then you will get WebSockets
1: as well. Uh,
0: that is where... So it'll work differently than my Flask web, Flask Sockets project. Yeah, correct.
1: It won't smuggle it through Whiskey in the same way. You would need to do some more custom integration for that, although I think it's probably doable. But it probably works better. Yeah, I don't know. I actually, I haven't looked very closely at Autobahn, so it might be the case that Autobahn has a pre-repped solution for this that I don't know about.
0: There was a reason I didn't use Autobahn when I set it up. I think it was because it focused on socket IO, maybe?
1: Yeah, Autobahn's uh, interesting. Uh, I don't, it's a bit weird, um, but, I mean, it mostly seems like it's pretty good code, and that's what... um
0: WebSockets is another one of those things that everyone thinks they want, but they actually don't need at all, most of the time, so when I went to implement, make a default application for Heroku, for a a demo app, I was like, there's not even any code for people to run WebSockets in Flask. this is ridiculous. Yeah so that's why I wrote flat sockets and it's not maintained at all because it's just a wrapper around a, a, a G Unicorn or a G Event runner that just sticks shoves it into Whiskey yeah as, a, as an object and it works you know so yeah
1: I mean it's it's a tricky one but what are you going to do um,
0: it's for, it, you know, if you're doing web sockets you have to really know what you're doing is what I'm saying because it, yes. it's literally let's introduce state into an entirely infinitely stateless system yeah I mean, I think, I, it, I think actually in, in but that, Python... they're more appropriate over H2, probably.
1: There is no spec for WebSockets over H2. Uh,
0: and so, oh, so if you're doing WebSockets, they're on H1. So you could have an H2 application that uses them, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you do your various things over H2, and when you want, when you want WebSockets, you just open a new TCP connection and do an H1 upgrade request to the WebSocket URL.
0: Is Are WebSockets considered H1, or are they a separate thing? Uh, they are not H1,
1: but their negotiation protocol is over H1. Gotcha. So,
0: yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, cool. All right, well, that's a good way to conclude, I think. Uh, yeah, I think so. I'm trying to think of any final question for you. Okay, so um, when I was started getting started in my in building requests and stuff, I, I really had this goal of becoming... Um, like a lot of the programmers that I really looked up to that are notoriety had a lot of notoriety um, once I kind of achieved that I didn't I don't have that anymore uh, like striving to be like this person X in some certain way usually it was in like GitHub stars and metrics like that mm-hmm. um but, you know, it was, like, people like Armin Ronacher, for example, I wanted to, like, be as popular as Flask, and, like, and I really embraced his philosophy and how he writes code, and I just loved everything about it. So, he was someone that I really looked up to actively at, in, like, open source career-wise. Mm-hmm. Do you have anyone like that in, at this point in your career? i mean I because it. i don't I, I don't have that anymore now that i'm established um i don't have it i don't have
1: it in quite now, so those, way. now all those
0: people are peers yeah. you know and i still look up to them a lot but i and if they give me feedback i would consider it tremendously um but i don't have anyone i like like genuinely like admire in that way does that make sense yeah, to you yeah
1: and i mean i think i think that's that's my my big that's been my big transition as well like there's that common piece of wisdom which is kill your heroes um
0: like <laughs> I've never heard that before uh, oh yeah so so like the gist yeah, i don't of that is, I don't have any code heroes at all anymore, and that's that's something yeah. that I wonder if that's a problem or not.
1: I don't think it's a problem, I think it's about a, a mind shift, right like you wanna go from a position where you say you know this person is is a hero of mine because x like you wanna go. You need to come to a place where you realize that that person's a person with yeah. flaws and positive character traits and blind spots and opinions and all this other stuff and that they are one among many and they have traits and skills that you admire and that you want to cultivate to be like them. But it is always much better to, to come up at that and think of this person not as someone who is special and infallible,
0: but as I think a, it's ideally... Great to position yourself so you are one of those people to other people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think... I, I, if you're I, that I type of personality, yeah, at right. least. Like, I think that's is, nice. I, I have
0: that, and I, I, I think it's my main motivation behind doing everything that I do in open source. Yeah, I mean, mine is mine always... Because I really bit. value that, and but I think a, a lot of other developers don't. Like Alex Gaynor, for example, has that as well, and I don't think he values, values that. I don't think... I, I'm not saying he doesn't value it. I'm saying... I don't think he optimizes for that in any way. Yeah. I think he, he just cares about getting shit done. Yeah.
1: And I and I think there's an aspect of that, like, I'm I've always been much more interested in like I I wanna build stuff that solves the problems I'm interested in as best as possible. And so
0: Yeah I'm not so much
1: interested in like accumulating accumulating, you know, quote unquote fame or notoriety from the wider Python community. I'm much, much more interested in being acknowledged by the relevant subject matter experts in the field in which I work. Like, yeah.
0: yeah, I guess for me, I ideally want those to be the same, where yeah. I want to have as much impact as possible while sticking to exactly what I want to do. And I, I did that with requests, and I, I don't think I could do it again.
1: Uh, all this stuff, I go stuff, broad
0: so. with projects like The Hitchhiker's Guide to Python in- impacts everybody, but um, I don't... There's no motivation for me to build like that sub process module because it's not gonna build any of the things that I do and i if I was gonna build it, it was because I needed it to solve a problem I'm working on, uh, not because and those are the things that are successful if i if there's very few projects that I started that I was like. This is going to be huge that's why i'm making it like the ones that blew up were always the ones that are like i'm fucking fixing this thing yeah <laughs> because i i'm so frustrated like osx gcc installer yep uh which is my most popular thing uh and most impactful um because it influenced xcode da- select dash dash install mm-hmm. um it's why that exists mm-hmm. and um you know, I knew that that would be big though because I have clout, and I was able to be like write a blog post and be like, boom, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's the that's what I like. That's what I kind of optimized for both of those things, where I have the ability to be impactful. Because if I was nobody and I made that, no one probably would have cared. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Whereas I've I've always been much more interested. Like, I mean, like let's put it another way: if if you write a blog post, your blog post is going to end up shared on social media. More or less without any effort by a lot of people. Yeah, if if all it's at once. if it's
0: intended to. Yeah. Whereas Yeah. If, if
1: I write a blog post, the the role I have been opti- I've optimized my career for, either by on purpose or by accident, I'm not sure, is uh, my blog post isn't gonna be shared by a whole lot of people. But it's gonna be shared by a couple of really significant people. Because
0: Yeah. There are Like ideally I would share your blog post. You would share my
1: blog post, but like like I think, would show you Yeah, like I think people who who understand a whole lot of things at a really high level, who are experts in their relevant field, uh, I think many of those people would refer to me as one of their peers, and I think that's the place where I want to be. Like I'm not so interested in the notoriety. Yeah, I'm that's interested exactly in being, the same thing. I'm interested in being like someone
0: who is good at something,
1: and I think I'm good at that, but. My brain lies to me all the time, so. But you,
0: you see, you want to be known as someone
1: who's good at something. That's certainly a plus point.
0: Yeah. So th- I think I think we have the same perspective. It's just uh, t- we're different spots. Yeah. Kind of. Different spots and like it's just different
1: areas of interest. Like you're you're much more interested in solving yes. everyone's problem in a way that they notice. Whereas I'm much more interested in solving everyone's problem through the minimal application of personal effort. Like. H2, so requests, everyone wants to use it, and it's the bit they touch. I'm not so interested in that, actually. You want to be the
0: part that no one needs to touch, but it impacts everybody, which is why you do work on, like, Certify.
1: Yeah, Certify and H2, these places that are way down the dependency tree, that are in the big, long list of packages that scroll past when they get installed, when you do a pip install of something that you actually care about. And the reason they're in that big, long package is because the people who know how the stuff works know that there is only one way you get this done.
0: Um, yeah, and it's cool because you know that like every single person who has a Mac has your... I mean, they have PIP, right? Yep. So that means that they have requests, and that yep. means that they have the code that you work on. And that's like, whoa. Yep. <laughs>
1: Indeed. And, it gets, and it's all over the place, right? Like, you know, even the little stuff. Is that H2... true? Does, does
0: The system one does come with PIP now, right? Uh-huh. I've never thought about that. So that means I'm on every Mac? Is that true? Uh, no, the system one does not come with pip. Or if it, oh, or if it, it does, it.
1: it doesn't come with a... Uh, maybe it does. Hang on. Um, I'm really curious. If it does, it comes with an old pip. Oh, okay. It doesn't have a pip in user bin.
0: Really? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so that's kind of what I expected. So, maybe, did they introduce that in eleven? In sure pip?
1: I don't know if they put in pip at 2.7 at all.
0: Oh, they do. I I guarantee you. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think it was I think it was in dot 11. So whenever they go to dot 11, that means that uh will be everywhere. And that that to me will be like when I talk to my psychiatrist, I'll be able to be like, when he when he thinks I have like grandiosity or yeah. something like that, when I'm like no my everyone uses my code." I'll be like, "No, literally, it's on every Mac that, you, that is on the latest operating system." You know, I just like being able to say that yeah. to someone on an airplane when needed, like once every three months, you know? Yeah. Whereas like, the, thing I like, that's... the
1: thing I like is, you know, H2, H2's got a tag on its bug tracker called proprietary tracking bug. And that what that means is, <laughs> what that means is we found a bug in a non-open source implementation of HTTP2, and we wanted oh. to record it somewhere to point them at it. And this is what I like is, I found these bugs in Twitter's implementation, in Google's implementation, in Cloudflare's implementation, we find bugs in other people's software. Yeah. And that is awesome. Like, so we used to go, Do you know, how many people wrote this code? Mostly one person, like a few contributions, yeah, yeah. really important contributions from others, but at a protocol level, like mostly a couple people have done the bulk of the work. Um, and in fact, I should call out Alex Chan uh, as someone else who's done a whole ton of protocol level work on H2. Uh, but we have caught these bugs in. Team, you know, products from companies that have teams of people working on this stuff. And, you know, two folks working part-time on a project can build something that is better than the work being generated by those teams. That's cool. I like being it.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's I, that's to me what's what really interests me about all the people that, you know, all, all of our peers is like, like, what motivates you to do what you do because what i'm doing is changing and and what it, what motivated me before was obvious and no longer is i just do it because i love it yeah. you know and before before it was that too but i i knew reasons behind it mm-hmm. and now it's just more like it's what i do you know yeah yeah that's great and so and so but writing code is not one of those things anymore and so i so i'm like oh i need to build a web app that does something and then I don't know. I have anxiety about it. I guess. Yeah, that's reasonable. Anyway, I, I bring that up on almost every episode, so oh, I'm cool. sure our listeners are aware. Cool, very nice. uh, We should probably close now. Yeah, it's been a little <laughs> while. It's been a little while. I could go to the restroom now. That would be all right. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll close up so you can do that. Thank all you, everyone, right. for listening. And um, next week or whenever the next podcast comes out, uh, we'll have some other guests for you, maybe. Uh, Alex will be out of his vow of silence. We'll see. And thank you very much, Corey, for joining us and for the amazing maintenance work you do on requests. I can't thank you enough.
1: It's always an absolute pleasure to do the maintenance work, and it's always an absolute pleasure
0: to talk to you, Kenneth. Definitely. And shout out to your employer, maybe. Yeah. Maybe not.
1: Uh, So all of my hard maintenance work and my HTP2 stuff is all done on Hewlett Packard Enterprise's dime. They pay me to work full time on the Python open source stuff, which is just incredibly valuable and i cannot thank them enough for doing that so far we are 14 months into that and going strong so let's hope it keeps
0: going how, how many people are doing that an hpe uh in terms of the work
1: exactly like what i'm doing one it's me
0: wow well i'm really glad that they picked you yeah that's nice pretty pleased with that all, right. all right thanks thank you everybody we'll uh, talk to you soon